Hey, I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mo J.D. Philippus. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 105. I am your host, Dustin, and today I have with me... This is Donovan. This is Joe. And this is Stella. And we are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the weeks of November 18th through December 1st. We have a very small amount of news to go over, and we have a total of seven books to cover, including Suicide Squad, as we mentioned we would be covering in this episode. Uh, We mentioned that in the last episode, so... Without further ado, let's get right into comic news. This is Summer Gleason, back live at the Gotham State University. The campus bank was the target of a robbery and a malicious arson attempt by the so-called Scarecrow. As I said, we uh, don't have a lot of news. We haven't had a chance to really get a lot of updates on the website, but despite the fact that there hasn't been a lot of updates on the website, that's partially because there hasn't been really a whole lot of news. So the one bit of news that we have comes on November 19th. Um, Jeff Johns was tweeting on Twitter about um, one of the uh, about Batman Earth One. He mentioned that Barnes and Nobles uh, named Batman Earth One uh, one of their best quirky, beautiful, and different books of 2012. Um, and Gary Frank was uh, responding back to Jeff Johns's tweets by saying. Um, something in the regards of it's just a shame that there won't be a volume two, and then he said until next year. So um, <laughs> Frank uh, further elaborated, stating that uh, Johns is cooking up a great chapter two. So um, could we be getting Batman Earth One as early as 2013? Uh, I will hold my breath. Um, the fact that uh, we waited just over just under two years. From it was the time it was officially announced, Batman Earth One was going to be coming in 2012. Um, we didn't know when it was coming until about a year beforehand. So I'm going to hold my breath on this until uh, we actually hear something official from DC because um, we we all know that Gary Frank and Jeff Johns their work um, takes time, and uh, the fact. That Batman Earth 1, Volume 1, took so long. I could only imagine that Volume 2 is going to take just as long. So it could possibly come out in late 2013, but I'm going to hold my breath on that. Well, um, I don't even remember when Batman Earth 1 was first announced, but I know it was like at least at least three, maybe even four years ago. Uh, I'm trying to remember how long they were in development, or how long they had it done before it was actually published. And I'm not sure how long they they want to wait in between volumes because Superman Earth One, I believe that was that came out two years ago, and now this uh, Earth One Volume Two came out just recently. So I mean, yeah, I don't think we'll, we might not see it in the year 2013, but uh, I would be surprised if we didn't at least hear that it was coming out or know of development on it by 2014 or maybe late 2013. Yeah, and I think we we're all expecting a sequel, but it's nice to know that there's definitely one on the table. All right, so. 
as far as other news out there, um, we had no solicitations last two weeks, so there's nothing to talk about there. A lot of <clears throat> a lot of the interviews that have happened um, are talking about um, the death of the family, and there's really not a whole big purpose to talk about um, those interviews because a lot of them have spoilers in it, many of which we will discuss when it comes to the actual books that we're reviewing this month. And some of them lead into books that will be happening on the next podcast as well. So we're not going to cover those interviews. So probably the shortest news ever we've done. But uh, like I said, we do have seven books. So the very first book we're going to review is Batman the Dark Knight number 14. You wanted me. Here I am. I wanted to see what you'd do. And you didn't disappoint. You let five people die. Then you let Dent take your place. Even to a guy like me, that's cold. Where's Dent? Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. Then why do you want to kill me? (laughs) I I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, no. No. No, you, you complete me. You're garbage. You kills for money. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. Uh, Batman the Dark Knight number 14, The Twilight Kingdom. Writer Greg Hurwitz, artist David Finch, colors Sonia Obak, and letterer Desi Cienti. The issue picks up right where the last left off, with Batman stuck in a basement and Scarecrow with a creepy scythe made of bone. Batman attacks Scarecrow and gets stabbed in the arm by the bone scythe. Scarecrow seems to be getting the upper hand until Batman shoots one of his grappling guns through Scarecrow's jaw and into the ceiling. Batman crawls away from Scarecrow, hanging from the ceiling, and a furnace that is broken from the fight. Scarecrow gets himself free, goes to his lab, and gets a vial of supertoxin, then grabs the girl that he has had trapped in his closet, I mean basement, and tells her to go just as the furnace catches fire and the house explodes. We later see Batman struggling to walk the streets with the bone size sticking out of his body, and some street homies plan on taking him out and making history until Robin takes him out in a flash, grabs Batman, and takes him back to the mansion. Hours later, Bruce drowsily asks how Damien knew where to find him, and Damien explains that he had been out looking for him every night, and Alfred was tearing out his his uh, figurative hair. Bruce simply says, glad you're here, Damien. At the scene of Scarecrow's old hangout, GCPD investigates the scene and talks to the press, while a little distant from that site, Scarecrow in yet another creepy basement is ready to get back into the game. At GCPD Central, Gordon speaks to the girl who was let go, and she explains that he was taking sweat, he is in Scarecrow, was taking sweat from other kids, and there were maps with markings on them. Uh, They should be careful because Scarecrow is mad now. Later at the Iceberg Casino, we see a character we don't often see in these sorts of books, Penguin. Uh-huh. Scarecrow <laughs> Scarecrow walks in on Penguin, intimidating someone, uh, checks on the uh, previously made arrangements. Uh, Scarecrow gives Penguin several large diamonds, and Penguin tells him that the product will be completed just in time for Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. During the, uh, the Gotham Christmas Parade, Scarecrow flies a metal dirigible down Main Street, unleashing his super toxin. This is the way the world ends, not with a whimper, but with a bang. Next, Gotham Unhinged. <laughs> 
So, I, I think we've talked about this before, but Penguin, Penguin's God. popping up here again. Uh, so his line of business, um, you know, he seems to have his, his flipper and all sorts of things, and he's got supplies now for different purposes for sale, and, you know, we saw him with sort of guns in the background, and now he's making, like, this metal dirigible, so it seems like he's super penguin. I don't know if I've ever seen him in this sort of state. Uh, so what do you think of his new role as a sort of new 52 calculator where uh, he's not really helping people out digitally, but he's really giving anything that any of his potential uh, fellow crooks need. So what do you think about that? I think it's kind of interesting because <clears throat> that's what I was thinking when I read this was I was thinking to myself, Penguin has basically become the supplier of everyone in the new 52. Um, if they tilt toward the uh, the black side of things, um, I I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing. It makes it so that it it kind of it makes it so that you can it, you can explain why Penguin is one of those characters where he just happens to be legitimate enough to not be arrested constantly because all he's doing is supplying the stuff. He's not actually doing any of the bad stuff. Um, we've seen this in multiple books, it's just from books that we've done. I, who knows how many times Penguin's popped up in books that aren't in our books that we review, but we know that we, he, he's popped up in Birds of Prey, supplying stuff, um, the, mm -hmm. the Dirty Bomb. He, he was supplying um, the, who was it, Massacre in Batwing. He was supplying, um, well, just recently, he, uh, Joker came to him and said that he needs to ready the armies for the war that's about to happen. So, I mean, like, yeah. he's happening. He, he's in every book. He's basically, like, the go-to man for the villains of the DCU. So, I don't think it's a, necessarily a bad thing. Do I quite honestly think I need to see Penguin this much? No. I think they're probably overusing the character, and I don't really understand the purpose behind that. But I think, you know, if he's a supplier and, you know, it, it makes sense of why, you know, he can't just get arrested and he's not... Obviously, this is not Penguin from Batman Returns where he's, you know, very blatantly making it known that he is a villain. So he's trying to be legitimate. And we saw even in, the, in Detective Comics even more recently where he's trying to get the people of Gotham to like him even though everyone knows that he's a bad guy by donating money into charities and things like that. So I I just think overall he's just being overused, but I don't think the way they're using him is a bad way. I don't think that he's being overused. I know he's being overused, but I think that like at least he's not actually at least he's not actually a supervillain trying to steal priceless umbrellas in every single comic. I guess that's this is better. Um, I mean, I think Penguin, the Penguin really does work best when he's, like, you know, working out of the Iceberg Lounge fencing, essentially, like he did in uh, the new Batman Adventures. But I just, I, I really do think that, like, he is being overused to the point where, like, it almost seems like every time he appears, it's almost supposed to be, like, a surprise. And maybe that's dependent on the, the individual writers, but, like, it's like, oh, look, it's the Penguin. We, like, like Stella said facetiously, we've not seen him in a while. We see him literally every month. And um, I think he's being used best in Detective Comics. That feels like a, a Penguin story worth telling. Um, I, I I bet you ten bucks by the end of the uh, end of the month we'll probably see him in Talon or Batwoman or something. But I just feel that like I think that the Peng I think certain Bat villains shouldn't be f so frequent so they can keep their effectiveness. Like um, I mean the Riddler when he was a private eye, they 
they used him, but they didn't use him in every single comic. I mean, he was in like maybe one or two comics. I know he was in Gotham City Sirens for a little bit, um, and you know they kind of did what they could with him. I think the Penguin beat showing up in Nightwing or showing up in uh, all these other titles. They try. I guess I know they're trying to keep him a constant force in Gotham City, but I feel as though that it's just. I think that as as good as this whole uh, fencing persona can be, it is still kind of one note. So. I don't know. Maybe it's, I'm not saying so much as a problem with it. I just don't. I really don't like it. I, I don't really. I kind of. I, I kind of just really am tired of seeing him all the time. I don't think I liked him in the in the first place. So I guess it's just a personal preference for me. I like how he's being used, and I can see how he's being overused. But I think at the same time, if there were like five different characters where people were going to to get their different things, I'd be at least be going. Why there are five different characters doing the same job? Surely it could all be the penguin. It could all be this other person. So I like that it's consistent across the board. But at the same time, we don't need to see where all these villains get their stuff from. So it's still unnecessary. I wouldn't be surprised if Greg Hurwitz uh, wrote the penguin in because of the mini series. And I did like that continuity crossover. You know, we saw him literally destroying someone's life when Scarecrow walked in so I like that crossover and I like seeing Ogilvy in there and and uh, references to the other books he's been in recently so I liked his appearance in it but I can definitely see how or why people are getting frustrated with him yeah, I agree uh, definitely with Joe that, you know, it, it, he pops up so many times that I think now each time he pops up, I immediately text uh, Dustin and Don and say, oh, look, Penguin's in, you know, because it's just sort of uh, a run-on joke. Uh, but, you know, I do have to applaud, I think, the bad office because I feel like this is the one sort of consistent string that's linking all of the bat books, and it doesn't change from book to book. He's sort of acting the same way so I do think that is great and I think you know calculator I think it was always great to have you know sort of um, an evil oracle and I think this you know using penguin in this manner it's not like we're copying calculator but it's you know he's similar but actually he's doing something uh, very different so I think that uh, it's variation on a theme, but right now it's just it's 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 a running joke. But uh, I, I think that they do it well enough. My next thing: uh, What do you think Scarecrow has planned? Is it just widespread panic like in Batman Begins, or is there something more involved? And what do the buildings he marked have to do with what he is doing? What are your thoughts on this? I think it would be an interesting twist if we come to find out at the end of this story that that uh, Scarecrow is actually doing this for somebody like what happened in Batman Begins where he was doing his own thing but ultimately it was still to coincide with somebody else's plan and I think that would be kind of interesting it could lead up to whatever they have next planned we know the Mad Hatter is going to be and I don't really see uh, Scarecrow and Mad Hatter getting along at all so I don't see that happening but I think that if it turns out that it's just Scarecrow just trying to create panic across the city I don't really think that that's the best way to go but because how many times have we actually seen that we've seen that plenty of times so I'd like yeah. to see something different but at this point I don't I don't really know if th that's actually the way it's gonna you know if we're actually going to see something different or not I'm really hoping that we see something different and original 
I guess to a degree where it's not something that we've seen in a bunch of times prior because I mean it was not not even two years ago when or well not at this point it hasn't even been a year since Scarecrow popped up in this same series and had no purpose other than to show up and just make people afraid so I'm hoping that there's more to it than just oh I just want everybody in Gotham to be have be on my fear toxin. I agree, and I didn't actually think of Batman Begins with the fear toxin. I was thinking more of uh, Batman 1989, just with the the blimp type thing spewing out gas. Oh, so true, yeah, more movie references in the Dark Knight. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. Dustin said he didn't see or he couldn't see Mad Hatter and Scarecrow uh, being able to work together but you do have to think about um, the long Halloween and that for a short period they were sort of side by side Uh, do do you think it's just I mean they weren't like buddy buddy but they were sort of working together do you think it's just um, you don't see them flowing together or is it just the new 52 this version of Scarecrow you don't think he would work well with Mad Hatter I just don't see the two like okay so ultimately Scarecrow his his entire I guess ideal is to just basically instill fear into people. Mad Hatter is to control people. So I guess unless it was Mad Hatter trying to control people by using fear I guess that would be one way you could work it so that they could work together but I I just I don't know I I think I I see Mad Hatter as more of a technical tech guy with his gadgets and stuff like that compared to uh, compared to Scarecrow who's all about the chemistry of things and even though it is in the same regards it's still a, a form of science that they're both using it just seems like the two really wouldn't get along now, now that's not to say because I mean we, we really we haven't seen Mad Hatter in the new 52 is mm-hmm. how they want to perceive him so we don't really know how he will actually be but even even just based off of what we've seen in the last couple of years, which obviously could be extremely different than what they're going to do with this within the new fifty two, based off of what Mad Hatter has done and been the, over the last couple of years, Mad Hatter has he, he's he just seems like he's on a mission for himself. Uh, Scarecrow seems like he could be the patsy for somebody. That's just the way I I I take it. Even in this, it seems like he could still be the patsy for somebody. So. I don't know. I, I don't know that it would be Mad Hatter. I mean, there's still a good chunk of time. I think Mad Hatter is supposed to pop up in February. So, I mean, there's still two more issues that are going to happen or something else could happen. Although it would be kind of cool to see a writer take one story element and flow it into the next story element instead of having it end abruptly and say, here's the next story. Because, I mean, Scott Snyder does that, but he does that like by default because he's doing 11 issue story arcs or you know eight issue story arcs so that's just like by default that that's happening like there's references to what's happened in the past in his books but that's not flowing the stories together like leading up to something else and like the best example i can i can think of is hush even though that was all one story there was multiple different facets of what was happening in that story that led up to the ultimate conclusion of of uh, the Hush storyline. So, I mean, it would just be cool to see something where maybe it flows into the Mad Hatter some way, where we find out maybe the Mad Hatter was, you know, funding 
Scarecrow's researcher, who knows, something like that as yeah. a perspective for him to be able to control people a different way than he has been. Yeah, I'm hoping that Scarecrow, you know, has something more planned than just widespread panic, and I think that he probably does. And it was interesting you said um, that maybe he's being used as the patsy or perhaps um, just like Hush was using other people, and then, of course, in the end, Ridor was using uh, all those people that maybe he's used for something else. And so we didn't really get a clue as to why the buildings, you know, were marked on a map and what he had planned for that. But I wonder if uh, perhaps that has to do with uh, some of Wayne's uh, urban renewal. And maybe he's, like, attacking particular buildings to sort of bring Wayne down because we've seen that there are several people that want to bring uh, Bruce's <coughs> plan down, uh, like we saw in... Batgirl annual and, and uh, other things, so I guess we'll see. My final question uh, is about the characterization of Scarecrow, and we've talked about it a little bit, you know, whether we think it, it matches with what we feel like he is. Uh, but in this particular issue, um, just sometimes he really seemed just like an animal. I mean, he's wounded and he's bleeding, but he's just continuing on. I mean, even Penguin says, I mean, are you okay? You're just bleeding, but he's just standing there trying to get the job done. And then there's the fact that he let the little girl go. And, and so these two sort of don't match up for me. And I wondered, you know, what your thoughts were on this. Does Scarecrow's characterization seem inconsistent? Or do you think we just see a criminal that does have... Um, like a, a deep, deeper conscience, you know, that pops up sometimes. Uh, I think the whole point about the girl is he kind of saw himself in her, just like his dad experimented on him and kept him in the basement. He kept that little girl in the cellar and she still had some affection for him. So I th I think that's where that comes from. I don't think it's inconsistent. I don't think he's written as just, you know, like an animal or a complete psychopath. I think that Greg Hoetz is trying to make him more intelligent and and make him a deeper villain. So bringing those sort of almost contradictory things into it works in that it makes him a, a deeper character. Alright, so Batman the Dark Knight, number 14, I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five batterings. Three and a half out of five batterings. Three and a half out of five batterings. I thought that this issue was better than the last one, um, and it had some gruesome moments, but, you know, I always love Damien and Batman sort of, uh, you know, fatherly and, and son moments, and that was a bright spot in there. I give it four out of five batterings. All right, so Batman the Dark Knight, number 14, gets a total of three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batwoman, number 14. Anima Komoda Ali Pemitat. Anima Batgirl, take care of Faust. We need that incantation. Magic time, criminal scum. Batwoman number 14, written by J.H. Williams III and W. Hayden Blackman, with art by J.H. Williams III. The issue opens where the last one left off, with Batwoman and Wonder Woman approaching Pegasus, who, despite being immortal, is nearly dead after a battle with Falcon, who tried to convince him to join their mother's fight. Batwoman asks where Medusa has taken the missing children, but Pegasus tells her that he will only tell them if Wonder Woman puts him out of his agony and removes his head in a warrior's death. Wonder Woman agrees, and we learn that the children were in Gotham all along. Distressed by the beheading, Batwoman burns the corpse, but realises that it was the kindest thing to do. 
We cut to Gotham where the GCPD are trying to defend themselves against Medusa and her invading army. Mid-battle, Medusa and Maro perform another ritual on Killer Croc, turning him into the Hydra. Medusa calls for the children to be brought to the harbour and attempts to attack Harvey Bullock when he intervenes, but Maggie saves him from her stare. Just as Medusa is about to turn them to stone, Batwoman and Wonder Woman come flying in. Be continued. So, um, I was kind of wondering, because I'm a huge fan of J.H. Williams III, I know a lot of people are, how you feel about the art. Obviously the painted stuff is really beautiful, but it looks like Dave Stewart, the colorist, has kind of ad started adding more detail into the the more simple J.H. Williams art, the kind of line drawings. I was wondering if you noticed that and if you liked it or thought it detracted from the art or how you felt about that. I can't say that I noticed it, but now that you bring it up, I, I kind of see what you're saying. I mean, Dave Stewart's a, uh, an expert colorist, so... I mean, just him being on this, on this comic, to me, just gives it a lot more legitimacy. Not that I was lacking a lot of legitimacy, but, um, I mean, that's probably why it always looks so nice. I mean, the colors, the inks, and the pencils always come come together, whereas in some comics, like Nightwing, that's not really the case. So, uh, uh, I, 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 I didn't come to mind initially, but now that you bring it up, I, I can see what Stewart's doing, and I, I appreciate it. I have to wonder, though. I wonder if that's one of the. I wonder if that's one of the things that have been happening because of the fact that this because Jage Williams is doing a monthly. I mean, he's <clears throat> he hasn't taken a break for a long a long. It seems like he's been doing more issues than he has, and it always seems as if we get as we get closer to when we're going to see an artist change, his art starts to. I, I don't want to say it gets bad because it's not bad art, but it's not like as detailed as like the first couple issues right when he comes back from break. So I wonder if that's like what Dave Stewart's trying to do. He's just trying to make up for the fact that the art doesn't have because honestly, when I'm looking through the art, there's not as many you know of the crazy pages with all of the amazing art. There's only there's I mean a good chunk of the I think what was it there was like two issues that was nothing but splash pages and like there's there's a good chunk of splash pages in this but there are also a, a number of single pages too so I, I just have to i have to wonder if maybe that's the maybe dave stewart's doing that because there's not as much art um that is as eccentric as jh williams is normally possibly i mean i appreciate what he does with especially the painted stuff but uh, I've always liked, I've, I've said this before, but the the kind of two colours, generally, there's the one, the flat colour, it's very flat, a lot of the colour, but it, it still works with the kind of simplicity and cleanness of J.H. Williams's art. And uh, I've always liked that, but it's... I mean, I started reading this and thought that it, the art wasn't up to the usual standard. I thought it looked a little bit rushed in places, and... Then looking closer, I wasn't sure if it was just the colouring and how it's different. It kind of started to remind me a little bit of um, Guillaume March a bit, especially the first few pages with the rotting Pegasus character. And that might have just been more down to the colouring, but the inking looks a bit thicker. And I mean, I still think it's amazing art, but I just it's lost something for me. I think in this slightly more detailed colouring, and it might be like you said, down to trying to put more detail into the colouring to make up for any lack of you know, any, any any lack because of uh, lost time but 
I still think it's phenomenal. I mean, I still think a lot of the layouts are quite crazy and you know inventive, but this obviously it obviously takes a lot of time for JH Williams to do this art. I mean, it's phenomenally detailed. And I know Don's mentioned this in the past, and I also know that. Well, at least I don't think any of us are huge Wonder Woman fans, but I was wondering how you felt about her being written in this in this arc, because it feels like, especially in this issue, there's the mention of her saying, I wish I was as brave as this Wonder Woman character. And I wonder how you felt about that sort of looking up to this relatively new hero who's not even got superpowers. Um, Wonder Woman has always, always come up to me as a very gracious person. I think that she always appreciates... She's never... Wonder Woman was not the kind of, kind of character to say, you know, you're a rookie superhero, you can't roll with me. Like, she's always... Like, kind of like, you know, it's, honor, it's an honor to fight by your side, stranger. Something like that. Like, unless, unless it's Hawkgirl, she pretty much likes teaming up with anybody. So, <laughs> I think... I think that... I, I mean, I think that, like, I'm not sure how much of a reputation Batwoman has in Gotham City, let alone the greater DC Universe right now. But... Um, and, and it felt it felt fine to me. Like she's that's sort of like why I think she was quick to join the Justice League because the idea of fighting alongside other heroes is appealing to her. It's kind of like you know, uh, and I'm not trying to like, deliberately making a Marvel reference, but like in the movie of the Avengers, Thor saw the other heroes as champions, and you know, I think Wonder Woman is very much of the same mindset. So uh, I'm not sure how it took to you, Joe, but like I mean, it came up that came up as as natural to me. That came up as like in character. Yeah. To, to, to me, it just to, I felt as if it's just kind of odd that uh, for some odd reason, Wonder Woman would look at Batwoman and say, oh, I want to be more like her. Because to me, that doesn't... I mean, okay, maybe for, for the aspect of she wants to be more like her because she has... I, I, I don't know. She has maybe more... She has less allegiance to certain things compared to Wonder Woman or something something on that regards but i mean like for the most part i don't really see i mean i only know about wonder woman as far as what we have seen here and the the brief mentions that i see but by my knowledge she's hooking up with superman in justice league and she's got her own title where she's basically this myth mythological um person who's defeating all these other mythological creatures so it's similar to what we're seeing here with all these like pegasus being uh incarnated as a human and things like that but like for the most part i i just i have a hard time believing that she would want to not have to do that and because even even the way it's written here in the book it doesn't come across as she doesn't like doing what she's doing she just wishes she could be more free so I mean, if that's what she, that if that's what the, we're getting out of this, and that's why she's saying she wishes she could be more like uh, Batwoman, then I guess that 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 makes sense to me. But outside of the free aspect, I don't see how that's even remotely true to the character. Yeah, I think the main line that stood out to me, and I think it kind of goes in line with what Don was saying, but I think there's a different between difference between respecting the person you're with and you know respecting them as a hero and saying fear that I will never have half the courage of this Batwoman when she's like <laughs> an Amazonian goddess and I feel that was a kind of yeah, that similar, was to, when, similar to when uh, suit, Batman defeats Superman in a fight those sort of things where you kind of want the non-powered person to be more powerful it felt a bit forced I'd say yeah no I, when you 
I think that was your original point. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. And because Batwoman is a new character, that, that kind of seems like they're trying to build her up in ways. And I think Batwoman... I have a hard time kind of reading Batwoman's character whenever I read this comic because I find her more easy to get into when she's Maggie. When she's Batwoman, she always has that kind of smirk and like she always kind of goes to these, these, uh, these action scenes. And I don't really... It's hard for me to kind of like really get a grasp on who she is as Batwoman and what the difference is between her and Bat- Maggie. Maybe it's because I've not read enough of that, but um, I kind of agree that like, yeah, Wonder Woman's saying, oh, I wish I was as awesome as Bat- Batwoman uh, in this comic that I'm in. It does, and the fact that it's written by her uh, co-creator, it does ring a bit hollow. Uh, I mean, I, I, there, there's worse things, but I, I, I agree that like that, that was a little... <laughs> a little silly. Alright, so I'm going to give that woman number 14, 3 out of 5 better ranks. Now I'm going to give that woman number 14, 3 out of 5 better ranks. <laughs> I will give that woman number 14 possibly my lowest ever score for this title of 3.5 out of 5 better ranks. And I'll agree with Joe by giving it 3.5 out of 5 better ranks. Alright, so Batwoman number 14 gets a total of 3.5 out of 5 better ranks. Let's move into our next book. Talon number two. I've heard of copycat crooks, but this guy has you down cold. There's one important difference. The other Batman is left-handed. Another break-in, this time at the Gotham lens grinding plant. Let's go do some grinding of our own. Talon issue two. First Strike, written by Scott Snyder and James Tinian IV. Pencils by Juan Jose Rip. Inks by Vicente Cifuentes. This issue starts off with uh, Calvin Rose, a.k.a. The Talon, infiltrating the Orchid Hotel, uh, founded in 1893 by R.H. Orchid. This is essentially one of the Talon's many headquarters, which doubles as a prominent uh, upscale hotel in Gotham City. Uh, Sebastian Clark, the old guy who Rose teamed up with in the last issue, helped become Talon. Uh, <laughs> He's already telling. I should say, his, you know, give him his costume. Has uh, sent him there to infiltrate and essentially getting all the information they have on Calvin since he's a renegade talent. So after taking out the guards, uh, Calvin, uh, he basically foregoes the equipment that Clark gave him and basically like, like, like walked through the store where he could have used a secret key that would have not alerted their guard to his presence. Uh, their guard being this, like, long-haired zombie guy who kind of looks like... Um, Oh, I can't think of the character's name. He's from Metalocalypse. But basically, this this long, uh, this long-haired guy with a, a katana, or maybe just a sword. Anyway, he's a zombie. Uh, you know, he's a talent, so he's undead. So while Rose is avoiding him, he manages to get upstairs where he's in uh, this prestigious office looking for the talent's safe. The talent's safe is apparently under the carpet. Sneaky, sneaky. And um, after something that's happening, which I can't tell because of the arts, they managed to open the safe and find the uh, the mask of the grandfathers, which is essentially the ultimate symbol of authority in the Talons, as told by the guard who is who turns out to be Benjamin Orchard, the son of R. H. Orchard, who founded uh, the hotel. So a fight ensues. The Benjamin grabs the mask and starts to exposit his backstory. Uh, for convenience sake. He originally, around the age of the Depression, when, when he grew up, didn't think that his family had anything going on with them, so he ran away and um, joined Haley's Circus, as it always is. Once he realized that Haley's Circus was in league with the Talons, he joined the Talons, but it was revealed that the leader of the Talons at the time 
was his father. His father, not really appreciating the fact that his, fa- his son abandoned him, told his son that this is what you're going to do. You're going to kill for me until I'm bored, and then I'm going to treat you like crap. So that happens, and um, Benjamin's throat was slipped, and he was replaced, and he was sentenced to guard this hotel forever. But, uh, but now he can take back the mask and become the leader of the talents, I think. So, so uh, after this story is told, Talon asks Clark if all the guards are uh, that he beat up earlier are away from the nearby blasting point. He's about to blow the place up. Clark clearly lies, saying, "Oh yeah, they're they're far away. Go ahead and blow this place up." So that happens. Um, Calvin asks Benjamin to join him so they can fight the towns together, but Benjamin says, "No, this is where I belong. This is my place here." So Calvin has no choice but to escape and leave Benjamin to his fate, as the entire hotel, which is made of gold, starts to melt on his face. <laughs> um, Calvin, ber- uh, no, I'm sorry. Clark berates Calvin from showing any mercy, and gives his backstory that he was once invited to join the Talons, and after he saw how horrible they were, he decided to strike back, uh, being as ruthless as possible he could towards them. And uh, by the end of the issue, the Talons are all in agreement that, all right, all right, all right, we got to start taking this this renegade Rose guy seriously. So they go towards, um, what's his character's name? Felix Harmon, one of their most dangerous Talons who killed over 100 people and some of their own members years ago before being sealed away. And they break him out of his tomb, asking him, would you like to kill again? And he says, how can I refuse? Next, the shadow in Manhattan. So apparently we're moving away from Gotham. Talon issue two. Uh, this one sees the first uh, full-scale team up between Sebastian Clark and Calvin, Ro- Calvin Rose. Last issue, we were talking about what we thought about this new partnership because we were on, all under the assumption that Calvin Rose was going to be operating by himself. And in this issue, we see we see play out that pretty much throughout the entirety of the storyline, Calvin's repeatedly doing his own thing and sort of foregoing what uh, he and Sebastian Clark had talked about previously in terms of their preparation um, and they're, they're a very disagreeable couple essentially and we also see near the end that uh, Sebastian Clark gleefully almost uh, lies to him saying that like the, the knocked out guards are away so they wouldn't die in the explosion when they clearly weren't so my question to the listeners and to you guys how do you see this partnership going down after this issue? Since they're uh, particularly shown to be very disagreeable, do you see that they're going to stick together and work things out? Do you see that they're going to go up against each other? Is Sebastian Clark going to pose a threat towards Talon? What are your thoughts after seeing the two work together here? I think it's going to be an uneasy partnership. I think you could tell sort of from the previous issue that it was never going to be something that was easy because I mean uh, Calvin ran away and Sebastian basically had to seduce him to the dark side by saying you know (laughs) remember those Washingtons well work with me you know and they'll be okay and I mean Calvin doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's going to be a good partner uh, take orders take constructive criticism criticism that sort of thing uh so i think it'll be a developing relationship but it's going to be rocky in the beginning but i don't think that they're going to call it quits uh they sort of need each other for different reasons but um yeah it's just going to be it's going to be rough i think ultimately the 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 thing we're trying they're trying to get across is that kelvin does not want to necessarily work with anybody and the fact that Clark has basically thrown out there 
oh well those Washingtons those are the that's the reason why you should be helping me it's basically like blackmailing uh, Calvin into actually helping him and I think that ultimately I think the two have a completely different idea of what needs to happen and I think Calvin is more on the lines of I don't want to have to deal with these guys anymore but I want to take them out but I don't want to deal with them head on and I think Sebastian Clark is more like I want to get these guys and I want to hit them head on and I think that's the biggest thing and the problem is that it's not Sebastian Clark who's out there hitting them dead on it would be Calvin so I mean like that that's where there's going to be a huge rift between the two of them yeah, and I mean, the issue effectively ends with Calvin saying, "Look, I'm I'm going to do my thing now because you lie to me. I'm going to do mine. If you help me do that, then we'll continue doing your mission." So, I think it's definitely going to continue and develop. Whether it will stick around or if it will explode, uh, I'm not sure. But it'll be interesting to see that. Yeah, I think that uh, Sebastian Clark actually came off a little bit villainous, and it's not just in his actions, but the art when um, <laughs> I remember his name <laughs> the guy who looks like Nathan Explosion was giving his backstory and then Calvin says are those guards clear Clark and we see like uh, Clark look at the guards knocked out and he has this like really evil look on his face like oh they're long gone ha 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 and um, it seems at least in this, uh, this story that they're kind of setting him up to be an antagonist uh, it would be interesting to have Talon go up against an antagonist who's also against the Talons, but is just being a jerk about it, I guess. Um, I also find it interesting that like they show Talon to have uh, to have that that good heart and has a, have a value of life. That's another thing over there. Um, question two: This issue is the first issue uh, after the zero issue in the first issue. Um, okay, when uh, we we're seeing Talon being illustrated by Gillian March. And um, I don't know about you guys, well, but I that's found a lie. That's a lie. It is. Is it not illustrated or illustrated by you, March? Was well, the first one that's not illustrated by you, March? Yeah. Okay. It it is right. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Okay. I mean the first one. Miss okay. Sorry. Sweet. The question stands. Um, this was illustrated <laughs> by Juan Jose, and um, I had a hard time telling what was going on in certain scenes. I didn't know exactly what. Rose did to open the safe. It's like he took, he threw over the the carpet, and like you see the the sound effects click click click, and then you hear Clark saying, "Well done, my boy. Truly, you are I don't know king of kings." And it didn't seem like anything happened. And um, there are also some some of the fight sequences when he was fighting the guards. Um, I you see Calvin in one instance, like kind of just hold. I know I know in one hand he had, he grabbed one of the guns, but like the next panel you see. It, the guard bleeding from the mouth. I, I just thought that the arts, while very illustrative, was kind of confusing and didn't really tell the story. So my question to you guys is, how did you feel about the art? Since this is the first artist change in the title, technically. I thought it was funny that Gear March has already dropped the ball. Because uh, I think I was wondering how long he'd stay on it because, he's, I've, like I said, I've rarely seen him stick around for more than three issues. So sticking to tradition was nice. Um... To be honest, I wasn't paying much attention to the storytelling of it because I really liked the art, like just the how it looked. So I, I followed the story well enough. Whether it could have been clearer, I mean, possibly. I've, I've never heard of this guy before, so it might be early work and storytelling. Obviously, gets better with more work. But uh, as for the actual 
look of the book, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was in some places reminiscent to Gear March, but a lot cleaner. And yeah, I really enjoyed. I'd be very happy to see this guy continue on the series. Well, I will say that uh, Gillian March is only supposed to be off for, I believe, this issue, and then he's coming back. I think, ultimately, he's one of those people who just can't keep up with a monthly schedule, so he does one or two issues, and then he takes a break for a month or whatever. I, I don't really understand the, the idea of why you why DC gets artists to do a monthly book if they can't keep up and do a monthly book. I mean, like, that's just me. But... But at the same time, DC is pretty re- is pretty good about getting artists who, not I wouldn't say mimic, but have very similar styles of art. So that way, when you pick up the book, and you are expecting a specific type of art based off of what you've seen in previous issues, you're not getting hit with a brick wall because it's something very different. The art here is still very similar, but as Joe said, it's much cleaner and in my opinion, as well as Joe's, it does look better too, so, I mean, the thing is, I, 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 I don't really care one way or the other if Gillian March comes back, obviously, we know he's coming back, but if he comes back, or if they have this guy stay on, I personally think that this guy stay, this guy's, has nice art, but his name is not going to sell a book, much as Gillian March will. And, that, and that's not to say Gillian March is like Jim Lee or something like that, but he is more well-known than this artist. He's more infamous. Um, I mean, I personally prefer Mr. Rooftop, Rooftop Sex, but only because... Oh, I, boy. <laughs> because I feel that he, he actually can tell... I'm actually... I said when we covered the Zero issue that I was actually kind of growing tired of his style, and yet, I think that his style is still kind of engaging. It... it it uh, presents what's going on like clear. I think. I mean, it's not so much that this style was bad. It's just that there were instances where I legitimately did not know how some things happened or what was going on in the panel, which I think does bring the art down on a technical level. Um. Anyway, uh, and this is this final point. I mean, you guys f- can feel free to ignore this because I I think this this can kind of go into like a a question slash criticism. But honestly, um, I thought that the character of Benjamin Orchid, Nathan Explosion was like, I, I, I wasn't really sure on his motives, because according to his backstory, he uh, thought that his, his parents or his family didn't have anything going on, so he left to join the Haley Circus, of course. Um, he was recruited for the Talons, and then he was real sacre bleu, his dad's the leader of the Talons, and his dad treated him badly, and, you know, betrayed him and had him killed, and forced him to live as a guard forever. So then, so then he says, "I'm going to take this mask right here on my face, and you know, rule over this hotel forever. See, and then people will love me." I mean, I wasn't really sure what his what the point of that was. Like, I wasn't really sure what his motivations were. Like, why? Did, and even when he dies, possibly, he says, "You know, there you go, father." Uh, something, something, something. He says, "Um, I'll always be a part of this." Like, I wasn't really sure what his motivation was or what he was trying to do. I mean, obviously, he's, he's a guard, but, like, he was trying to deliver motivations, and I wasn't really sure what his motivations were. If you guys have any thoughts about that, feel free to comment. Otherwise, I'll just give the grade and end it. Um, you know, I think it's it's good to reflect on these particular talents and why they use them in each of the books. And this is something that I talked about when we were doing Night of the Owls, because 
they seem to either they pick like a really violent talent that no one is going to care about which happened a few times or they pick a talent that you're going to be sympathetic to and it somehow is related to that character so Damien if you remember like there was this sort of assassin and, and Damien was talking to him and you know I used to blindly follow orders too and then he kills him and here you have a talent here that he was sort of abused by his father um, and and you know, try to, I guess, potentially live up um, to what his father, I guess his father's ideals. But that's similar to Calvin here, because remember, Calvin was stuck in a dog cage, and like his father left him and that sort of thing. So you've got these two different people. What his motivations were, I feel like, I mean, maybe he really was just one of those people that constantly is trying to make their parent be proud of them and, and really live up to that name so even though it was just I mean it was over it, it was time to move on he just like could not let it go so maybe it was just like a weakness in the character that he just was going to go on no matter what and he was going to pick up you know the mask and continue on even though it, it, it seemed like there was no point in doing it yeah I read it the same as Stella but at the same time I mean it was a character in one issue who we won't see again so it doesn't really matter to me all that much alright so talent number two I'm going to give a total of two and a half out of five batterings uh, um, <laughs> I don't dislike this issue uh, I still am um, rather worried about Talon's future well not worried rather doubtful about Talon's future as a, as a viable DC comic but as an issue it was, it was decent enough I'll give, I'll, give it, I'll give it three out of five batterings I really, really like the art, and it might be a reflection of how little favor I had in the series to start with, but I enjoyed this issue quite a lot. I'll give it four out of five batterings, but just for this issue. I mean, I'm not promoting this series at all. <laughs> um, you know, this... Uh I like Batwing, I think, a little better as, as a character. Um, but I think that this is intriguing. I think that they just, they need to keep it fresh. And it can't, j like like I talked about before, you know, Smallville did the Freak of the Week. It can't be that way. It can't be a talent of the week each time. And I hope that there is something more. And I hope that, uh, you know, their relationship, uh, him and Sebastian, um, is interesting to us. Who knows? Uh, this wasn't the best one, uh, but I do give it 3.5, sort of a midway for me. All right, so that is going to give talent number two a total of three and a half out of five bed rings. Let's move into our next book, Suicide Squad number 14. Well, next to you, Mr. Smarty Bat. When I told Mr. J what I was doing, he was so thrilled he could hardly speak. Holly! Hi, Puddin! You're just in time to see the film! Excuse me, I'll be just a minute. But Puddin, I, I don't understand. Don't you want to finally get rid of Batman? Only if I do it, idiot! But it's still your plan, see? Everything just like you said. Except I hung the guy upside down so he'd see their little frowns as little smiles. Now it all works. Except you have to explain it to me. If you have to explain a joke, there is no joke. Now I'll calm down, Putin. You've forgotten what I told you a long time ago. One of the painful truths of comedy. You always take shots from folks who just don't get the joke. Ah! 
Suicide Squad number 14, written by Adam Glass, art by Fernando Dagino. The uh, issue starts off with... Uh, n- now, keep in mind, obviously, we don't obviously review this book on a normal basis, so I'm going to kind of just really hint at some of the stuff that has happened in the past with uh, the Suicide Squad, because I know everybody who's listening to this is, has not read this. But <laughs> Who is Deadshot? <laughs> recently, in a, recently in Suicide Squad, Deadshot has died, and he basically killed himself in order to kill a villain called Regulus that they were against. Harley Quinn was romantically linked to Deadshot. So that's the backstory leading up to what we'll discuss. So the present time is basically Harley Quinn and the rest of the Suicide Squad attending Deadshot's funeral. And he's getting a military funeral because he used to be a Marine. When the Joker um, pops up and he has a uh, poisonous rain that is knocking everybody out. Harley Quinn, of course, is not affected by this because she clearly has built up, built up an immunity towards the Joker's poisonous toxin. Um, the Joker and Harley Quinn start trading uh, a discussion back and forth. Uh, the Joker starts off the conversation by saying, Oh, look, you've got something on your face, and then whacks her in the face with his fist. <laughs> um, she then proceeds to uh, sit there and say, um, you know, wow, you've changed. And he says, wow, uh, you've changed a whole lot too. And he explains that when he went to go get his face, he found out that she must have tried to get it too because it smelled of cotton candy and cheap cologne. So uh, he, she explains that uh, she wanted to keep it safe for when he came back. And uh, then he starts asking her all these odd questions about, well, did you pray for me? Did you ask, uh, did you light some candles? Did you have a vigil? And while he's saying this, he's holding a uh, knife inside of her mouth, um, basically leading us to believe that she's going to slice her uh, her face open. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, there, after they talk about it, she, he uh, does slice her, but not not to the degree of like a super deep he explains that uh someone has to pay because she has basically replaced him with this new family the suicide squad so he walks up to captain boomerang and explains that uh if you knew what he did it would make you sick and uh he decides not to go after him then uh, he goes after amanda waller and says no that doesn't that's not going to work either you don't care about her to which then he is about to open the coffin and says, "I'm going to go. I'm going to go after uh, your boyfriend." And she goes, uh, "Leave him alone, or I'll shoot." And she goes, uh, "You're not going to shoot. Come on, I know you." So then uh, he says, uh, "How about this? You do a favor for me, and I'll leave you and your dead boyfriend alone." So then uh, we cut to an hour later, where Amanda Waller and uh, Captain Boomerang are talking about the uh, the poisonous rain and saying it's a derivative of Joker's uh, poisonous toxin. Uh, I'm going to skip through a lot of these different things because this has nothing to do with death of the family, but Amanda Waller is at Belle Reve, and she is talking to um, one of the scientists there. Um, she approaches um, a villain called Iceberg and explains that he's got his arm back. Uh, he isn't necessarily happy about this, um, because his arm is, in fact, a solid piece of ice. Uh, we see King Shark in a deprogramming room 
where he is approached by someone who pops through the wall and then we see um, El Diablo who is basically convinced that uh, he has decided that he needs to let the fire out and he needs to um, embrace Regulus, the villain that we saw in the last issue um, and he bursts the flames and busts out uh, tries to bust out but uh, the, the, the cell that he has actually has uh, similar to like a f uh, fire extinguisher flame retardant foam that puts him out right away um, we then see um, elsewhere we see Black Spider who is hung up, Amanda Waller talks to him and says um, you're smarter than this, how could you have done what you've done, he explains because the time is coming and uh, you've already lost the battle um, then we cut to the chemical plant, which we saw back in Batman number 13 and the beginning of Batman number 14. And uh, this takes place uh, right after Batman number 14, where Harley Quinn is running away and she's just telling Joker, I did exactly what you wanted to, I, I, uh, I locked Batman up, um, so now a deal is a deal, you're going to let me go. And then uh, Joker says, who's, who's at the wheel these days? Is it Harley Quinn or is it... The annoying, boring Dr. Harley Quinzel. Then she responds, "It's uh, Harley," and he says, "Yeah, but I think uh, you've—I th I thought we didn't have any secrets from each other." And uh, she responds, "Everybody always has a secret from a secret." To which she then gets hung up by a chain around her neck as the Joker swings through and says, "Well, then why don't you hang out and tell me a few Harley?" So the next issue, love and hate. All right, Suicide Squad number 14. <clears throat> Suicide Squad number 14. The first thing I want to talk about is obviously, as we know, we don't review this issue on a normal basis. We reviewed this specifically because it ties in with Death of the Family. So the first thing I want to talk about is how well do you think it tied in with Death of the Family? Now, in the past, we reviewed other books that we don't normally review um, based off of the fact that it's supposed to be tying into the uh, the crossover event that's happening, um, but they haven't always necessarily tied in very well. So um, my thing is, I think as an issue that doesn't always deal specifically with the characters in a crossover event, I think it's important for a book when it does tie in to not only tie in properly where it has enough um, and I guess enough fluff inside of it to actually make it substantial enough to become part of the crossover, but also as like a lead-in for people who are picking up the book because it's the crossover to get a feel of what the book is. So what do you think of that? I think that um, this is the best issue of Suicide Squad I've ever read. <laughs> it's also the first. Um, I think that this, this does a lot better job of crossing into like, you know, advertising the storyline than um, Jonah Hex did back when Court of Owls or Night of Owls. Well, because Harley Harley Quinn, if she's in a book, if she's a regular on a comic book series, then she should have something to do with the Joker storyline. Um, I don't remember when the, when the storyline last laugh was. I'm not sure because I remember when Harley Quinn had her own series. I really don't know if that was going on concurrently and whether they cross over or not. But this is this is a sort of a logical thing for them to do as opposed to you know say. Yes, this thing happened in Gotham City. Will happen 200 years in the past in the West. Uh, it, it feels a lot more logical. I thought that this issue, 
uh, illustrated that Joker is different. He is darker than he has been. That 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 the, the, the title Batman has been saying. Um, and I thought I did pretty, pretty well. I'm not really a big fan of Harley Quinn being this like uh, assertive action action girl. I know we talked about this like last year on during um, Gotham City Sirens. When she was like Jack Bauer infiltrating Arkham Asylum, I didn't really like that. So, and I'm sure I'm not sure if she's uh, being portrayed like that a lot in this title. But I think that her and the Joker were always going to have interesting chemistry, no matter what move the characters are in. I thought that this kind of played up to that. I think that um, I think if the Joker kills Harley, <laughs> uh, oh, that would be a well that I don't think that the DC would really want to pull. I, I, I wouldn't like that, and I think that, like, if they're kind of... I don't think they're going to do it, but I think that, um... So I know some readers are speculating that. Uh, my, brother, my brother actually asked me, he said, I, I saw online, is, did the Joker kill Harley? I was like, no, not yet, but, uh... You know, I, I think that, like, um... Because, I mean, there are certain comics that are solicited say, saying, like, you know, Nightwing, after the events of Death of the, of the Family, Nightwing will never be the same again. And so I'm wondering where Harley's going to figure into this, or because I'm hoping this storyline isn't just going to be a Batman storyline, which tertiarily trots over to other titles. So I kind of feel fear for Harley, but I think this issue did a good job in uh, adding another chapter to the um, Death of the Family storyline. And the fact that it took place in between Batman 13 and 14 worked really well, well as well. I thought. Yeah, I thought it worked. I mean, I thought it worked really well as a tie-in. And as a crossover, it I'd never read any Suicide Squad before, and I didn't need to. I understood what was going on. Um, I luckily, I've, I mean, I've read Resurrection Man, so I knew I recognised a bit towards the end about Mitchelly's hand in the tank. But that was the only other sort of tying storyline that I knew. But I mean, that wasn't really necessary. It was kind of interesting. I mean, I'm probably gonna go back and start collecting this in some of the trays possibly because um, I've heard that it's actually meant to be quite good um, I've I know Adam Glass through the I've forgotten exactly which one it was but it was a Flashpoint tie-in and that too was horrifically violent I remember at one point Plastic Man climbing out of somebody's body and them just collapsing in a pool of their own blood so it didn't <laughs> shock me to see Joker punch Harley Quinn right in the face although it was still a bit odd and I mean it's kind of weird because like I didn't need this to understand the Harley and Joker relationship that was in Batman and I think having this maybe this is how she's written more recently because I haven't been reading Suicide Squad so it might seem out of place in Batman to have her so affectionate towards the Joker because I felt that in that in the backup story with James Tinian and Jock that she was written really affectionate towards Joker and that she still you know obviously had deep feelings for him no matter how odd and in this it feels like she's a bit she's generally scared of him and you know, she has the feelings for, uh, or she loves Deadshot, who's now dead. So, it is slightly kind of, I feel they contradict each other a bit, but it, as an as a single issue, it worked well. If you're, if I was reading Suicide Squad, I'm sure it flows well. It worked well just picking up that single issue and the next one, and I'm interested in the series, but I just feel that 
I mean, it wasn't necessary, but that, that doesn't matter because half of them aren't going to be. But it just felt like there was conflict between the two versions of Harley that we've seen so far. Now, see, that's that's actually my second point, which is there has been a couple of different variations of Harley. Now, I honestly believe that the way that Harley was written in Batman number 14 in the main story or no she wasn't in Batman number 14 at the end of Batman number 13 where we see Batman saying to Harley don't do this you know this is this is not what you are blah 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 and Harley basically responds back and says you don't understand the Joker's not the way he is he's much he's he's very, he's he's there's something off with him he's he's more determined this time around she's saying that i felt like that lined up perfectly with what this was but that but that backup story i felt was different where they set up basically how harley gets to the chemical factory and why she's doing what she's doing i felt as if that was slightly conflicting against what was in batman number 13 and in this where it made it seem like she was doing it out of her affection for for uh, for the Joker but ultimately I didn't really feel like any of them really made it seem like completely like she is still absolutely infatuated with uh, the Joker and she's going to do whatever he says. I think ultimately it was portrayed pretty well in the backup story and in Batman number 13 that she was doing this because he is absolutely nuts, and she's afraid of him. That's how. That's what I got out of it. So for me, it it, it made this worked. This made sense, even though they didn't obviously have anything to do with the Deadshot stuff inside of uh, the backup or or Batman number thirteen. I think it worked much better for them to talk about the Deadshot aspect of it in Suicide Squad, since that's where that, that's happening. But based off of but that's the that's the thing I want to talk about as far as do you think that Harley is doing this more regardless of how it's portrayed in this do you feel as if Harley is actually doing what she's doing because she feels afraid of the Joker or is she doing it out of affection for the Joker I think that there's always kind of been a, uh, an element to Harley in the comics that has been afraid of the Joker um, just by the way it's been played I mean it was always kind of started when she first appeared uh, during No Man's Land, it was always a little darker in that she would visibly be seen a lot more abused, or he would be a lot more abusive towards her. It wasn't as cute as uh, the animated series, and I think that, like, um, she, it's, it's a lot more, I think just because of the nature of the comic, it's, it's, it's ended up a lot being a lot more of a darker relationship. And um, so far in this storyline, she's all, she's clearly terrified. There is no love. And, and, and Joker kind of, like, kind of almost mocks her affections for him. So I, I definitely think that she's doing it out of, you know, fear for her own ass rather than, you know, genuine love. I think, going back to what Dustin was saying about how she was written in the... towards the end of issue 13, I think that that definitely flows with what is being written in this issue. At the time, I thought that that flowed into the backup, but I think that out of all of them, that one seems the most out of place to me. I, I know that you don't see her feeling much affection towards him but like I said when we reviewed that I feel that there's pretty strong indications that she was doing what she was doing partly because she was scared but partly because she wanted to please him 
and maybe she was just terrified but I think definitely if you take this and you take the main story in Batman 13 she's definitely doing it out of fear because I mean when she's talking to Batman Harley saying and Batman saying you know you don't do this she almost says like I think she says like he's not my Mr. J anymore and she uh she just sounded like she was doing it because she felt like she really had to she that she was getting no pleasure out of that which she used to when she was you know his Harley Quinn alright so Suicide Squad number 14 I'm going to give a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings I will give it to 3.5 out of 5 batterings I will also give it 3.5 out of 5 batterings I thought it was actually a pretty good story uh <laughs> It was dark. I guess this is just the way. This is the first Suicide Squad that I actually read, but it was enjoyable slash scary slash <laughs> slightly macabre. And people, if you do not know what Brie is, B R I S, I could not believe oh, no. that Joker said when us. Basically, he said, "Let's see if um, he was circumcised." Oh, when he was talking about checking out dead shot there anyways but besides that a uh, four out of five batterings all right so suicide squad number 14 gets a total of three and a half out of five batterings let's move into our next book catwoman number 14 it's a brazen costume for a cat burglar yeah who are you pretending to be oh joy Catwoman number 14, written by Anne Lucenti, with art by Rafa Sandoval. The issue sort of starts with the last one left off, with the Joker talking to Catwoman on the rooftop. Joker has strapped a bomb to the little boy who Catwoman saved, and says that if she wants to save him again, they must follow him to hell. And at Elliot Beach Amusement Park, we see what he means, because Joker removes the bomb from the boy he runs away, whilst Catwoman is strapped into the hellhole ride and keeping it in the Batman family. The Hellhole ride is essentially a souped-up version of Riddle Me This, the ride in Six Flags, Six Flags America. I did my research. Joker <laughs> starts the ride, and clothes start tearing, bones are breaking, blood is flying, but apparently Selina can break those cuffs before she's shot in the face by a jet of water. Catwoman wakes up several hours later when the Joker returns who kisses her and tears off the remaining fragments of her costume. Joker tells Catwoman that she's weak and that she needs to stop pining over Batman or she will make him weak too. He then throws her another costume and once she has it on, she proceeds to beat him up but before, before long she becomes rigid and keels over. Joker explains that the inside of the costume was laced with rigor mortis paint and that he knows everything about her, before once again pulling out his tiny black book. With Catwoman paralysed, Joker takes his second opportunity to get her naked by cheating at a game of strip poker. Catwoman's clever response to this is to tell Joker that he stinks, but he simply bores her with another one of his many origin stories before giving her the antidote to the, to the paint. Back at her apartment, Gwen shows up to see where she's been, and Selina tells her to organise a meeting with the man who arranged the chess heist. The man knows nothing about the Joker, but does say that he gave Catwoman a bonus and pours a bunch of money on her. Frustrated, Catwoman leaves, but while pouting, she's hit by the Joker in a truck into a large tank of piranhas. Catwoman saves herself, but the fish were only wind-up toys anyway. Sick of Joker's games, she once again proceeds to beat him up. 
she realizes that Joker isn't out to kill her or Batman, so she just walks off. And realizing that he can't convert her, the Joker walks off too. So I was kind of wondering what you thought about how Catwoman's relationship with Batman is written in this issue, particularly with Batman not being present. Could you expound on that a little bit? Well, because, I mean, there's lots of references to, you know, where is he? Uh, you know, I haven't seen him in a while. He's, not, he's normally there to save me. There's lots of things like that. I was wondering how you felt about that opposed to, you know, every time I see him, I just try and jump on his crotch. <laughs> every single time. Um... It's not something that I'm not used to in certain certain uh, times. I think that Catwoman is a, is a character who most of the time doesn't like to admit that she needs any help, but uh, when it comes down to it, she always has a reliance on Batman, or at least hopes that she can rely on him. So it's not much... It's not really anything... It's not, it's not a new invention of the new PTQ as much as it is, you know, every now and then she thinks that Batman will save her butt out of the fire. Um, I've not seen it in a while, but... Uh, that wasn't anything that was totally alien to me. And it might not even be, even be that great towards her own character, in terms of she is supposed to be really strong and independent, but um, I, I, I personally didn't really have uh, so much of an issue with it. Uh, I almost feel like I should, but I don't. Yeah, I don't have an issue with it. I think, it, if anything, it's slightly stronger. It's showing that she has more effects than affection than she's willing to admit and shows that she at least the way I read it has deeper feelings towards him than just a, a physical one because she's thinking about him in the back of her mind and and you know saying what can I do to save him to the Joker and things like that I, I think the, the big thing is to me ever since we saw I, what, what issue was that? I think it was like issue four or something like that, where she was basically like, "I don't want anything to do with Batman. Batman's going to make me choose. I don't want anything to do with him. I'll, I'm going to do my own thing." And even like when Catwoman crossed over with Night of the Owls, it had nothing to do with Batman. She was out for herself, and she, you know, essentially saved uh, Oswald Cobblepot, but kind of like by happenstance. It wasn't like she did it on purpose. Well, I mean, she did it on purpose, but she it wasn't like a pre-planned thing of, oh, I'm going to help Batman take out these talons. It was just, she was at the right place at the right time, and she stopped the talon from killing Cobblepot. So, ultimately, I think, ever since that whole situation where she was just like, I don't want anything to do with Batman, it's basically, we really even, ha we, we've barely had even, like, random mentions of it. So, for Joker to come in and basically, like, slap Catwoman in the face with the whole, you know... I'm going to get Batman, and I know that you have, I know you have feelings for him, and I know he's your essential, essentially your savior. So I'm just telling you flat out, I'm going to get him, and I'm going to make sure that I can put everything the way it should be instead of the way it is. And I think ultimately, it's just basically a, a nice way of bringing back that element in Catwoman's mind of, okay, so I, I even though I said I didn't want anything to do with Batman and even though Batman hasn't really been mentioned that much in my series for the last uh, you know, ten issues or whatever ultimately I still think about him and Joker is now making sure that that's a thought directly in my mind as far as this is something that that I'm thinking about is I'm in, I am thinking about Batman I am thinking about his well-being even if um 
even if he is the way he is and he doesn't want me to be doing what I'm doing. So I think it's it's definitely interesting because I thought this was a, a good way of crossing the series over without directly, again, directly inputting it into what's actually happening. Okay, and I guess you kind of touched upon it a little bit, but I was kind of wondering... I, I was reading this, and I kind of understood the role in this issue, uh, Joker's role in this, tr- kind of trying to turn Catwoman against Batman, almost trying to turn her back into what she used to be, and then that would drive Batman and Catwoman further apart. But I kind of thought the the death of the family, like the description of it was, he's going after the members of the family because they're what makes him weak. I mean, I guess he doesn't necessarily have to attack them and kill them. He can do it in different ways but I was wondering what you thought what you thought Joker's motives were and whether you thought they kind of fit within the the crossover parameters I didn't like this because I thought that like um I honestly the, the whole plot of death of the family does not uh really ring true with me because like I think Joker's attention is being drawn in ways which and I know that the Joker can kind of be universal where he can be made to do anything kind of like Batman is, but the way they're writing him, it's not so much new as it is. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's, it's his character, to be honest. Like, in the next issue, we're going to talk about how he's magically at the place where Nightwing's girlfriend is being held at. And it's just, why does he care? I think that, honestly, to be honest, I think that he, it would make more sense if he was out killing off uh, Batman's other villains rather than attacking his friends because he sees Gordon as a joke he sees the sidekick as a, as a joke he doesn't see them as, as worthwhile distractions and I think that like uh, if he really were, was going to make an effective sign towards Batman he would just he would kill Catwoman he would kill Nightwing he would actually do something rather than just be re- random distractions for them to fill up an issue and say yeah this is part of the crossover I think that he shouldn't I mean I think Catwoman it makes little sense that he just says, well, Catwoman, you've changed since you fell in love with Batman, but it's almost like he cares about her, uh, you know, in his own weird little way, and I just think that this, I mean, this just didn't really, really ring true for me. It's like, why, since when has Catwoman ever been, like, in the Joker's uh, uh, attention? Like, like when? I mean, and I'd say, like, they have to have past history, but, like you said, like, you know, she's, a, she's really part of the Bat family, whether no matter how she's written, like, oh, she's a thief, but not, come on, she's not a bad guy anymore. So, like, we're supposed to be operating under this idea that, like, he is going after her f- from a villain's perspective. Why isn't he going after Penguin? Why isn't he going after Scarecrow? Why isn't he going after Mad Hatter? And I don't think it really fits uh, what they're trying to do and what they've been saying he's been doing. I think the thing is that th- for this story, I said earlier, that I, I already said I, I like this crossover. I think that ultimately it has to do with the Joker. He wants Catwoman to... He knows that, that, that Batman has a spot for Catwoman. But Catwoman is not necessarily part of the direct family. And I think that's the way the Joker looks at it. I think the Joker looks at it and says, Okay, Catwoman is you know not necessarily always on the same side as Batman, but... He's she's definitely something that Batman has 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 uh, I guess I don't want to I don't, I don't want to say feelings but that's I can't really think of any other way of saying it just basically like a soft spot in his heart for Catwoman and that's why he always lets her go and that's why he he's he's basically always in most cases when she's in trouble he randomly appears to save her and things like that it's like. I have to wonder if maybe the Joker's 
doesn't view Catwoman as necessarily a threat because it's not necessarily an ally. It is an ally, but it's not the ally in the sense of the way the Joker's looking at it. Because it, if you look at it from the perspective of... If you look at it from the way the Joker said it, where basically Batman is the king and he has his court. Catwoman's not part of the court. She's like the... the I, I And I can't think of a better word again, but the hooker who lives down in the next castle over who he happens to see every once in a while. The hooker who lives down in the... I I can't think of a better way to say it. But she's not part of the court. And I think that's why the Joker doesn't view her as like a threat and wants to take her out. He wants to basically mess around with her and stuff like that and like screw with her so that she can... She essentially knows what's going on and she has an idea... But I don't think he has any intention of taking her out because ultimately there's been times where they've been on the same side. It would be like the equivalent of, I mean, really the most interesting thing would be, and and this has nothing to do with Catwoman, but I, I guess based off of this interaction between Joker and Catwoman, the interaction I am most looking forward to with the Joker is actually Joker versus Jason Todd. Because obviously Jason Todd has his issues with the Joker, but ultimately, according to... Red Hood and the Outlaws number zero. If the Joker made Jason Todd the person who he is, why would why would he be upset with who Jason Todd is? So that's what I'm looking forward to because based off of this uh, encounter between Catwoman and Joker, I have to wonder how closely um, you know he looks at Jason Todd and says, "Oh yeah, Jason Todd, you're this, you're another." pawn in the court of Batman and I need to take you out because I don't see that I see it as he's already taken Jason Todd out and he's turned him into essentially uh, not necessarily a villain but a vigilante where he uses guns and he kills people and things like that but that's he's brought he's already messed with him enough to get him away from Batman to the point where he's not around all the time so, I mean, I think Joker has, like, a bigger plan than just to eliminate every single person that Batman knows. Well, I mean, this is the problem with the crossover, though, because it's a conceit that this is just a storyline that's going to change Batman forever. And, like, uh, hey, Batman forever. And, like, you know, it makes sense that he's going to um, run up against uh, the other characters in the, in the Batman cast. But this, if this is the Joker, and he's darker than he's ever been before, and he's... You know he's they're playing they're put, they're really playing with the serial killer nature of it, and he's threatening Harley. Why is he pussyfooting? No pun intended. Why is he pussyfooting around with Catwoman? Why is he like you know proposing to Batgirl? Why is he wasting his time? I mean like it makes more sense to me. Either he attacks Batman directly like he did uh, it where you know he nearly kills the Commissioner Gordon. He kidnaps Alfred. You know, he these are these are, we have no idea what's going to happen with those characters. This, those are serious threats. Here and again, this, this falls back on with the original individual writers, but it's like he shows up. You know, they have hijinks, and then like he says, "Well, I'm going to go away now." You know, never mind. I'm not going to hurt you. Like you know, I wanted to go back to what I was really going to do, even though my involvement with you is part of my plan in the in the whole in the first place. And true, the story's not over yet, but like. It almost feels like this. This is like uh, a bait and switch, where ideally they're advertising that the Joker should be attacking all the members of the Batman because you know he forgot about the Joker and he's wasting his time with them. But he doesn't do anything. He like you know he he stamps Catwoman with a bunch of Batman tattoos, and like you know just skips away into the next issue. And it's like 
what was the point of this? What was the, what was the point of him cutting off his face? What was the point of all of this? And I, and I really do mean that. Like, I don't understand his motive at all in any of this. Besides, I mean, he, there's a whole, you know, you've changed, but it goes back to why should he care? This is about Batman. This isn't about Catwoman. Even though it's her own comic book, it's not really about her. It should be, if it involves the Joker, it should be about his attention towards Batman, not his opinions on Catwoman's persona. I know, but you specifically said one thing. You said... Joker's going after the Bat family, but in this regard, Catwoman's not part of the Bat family. Then why does he care? I definitely go to this. <laughs> well, I think that just comes down to because she has her own series. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Well, then you see my, do you see my uh, consternation? Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, you know, if he's one, I'm not saying he should never interact with her, but it should be more than like, you know, well, you're kind of different, Catwoman, and I think you should, uh, you know, do this and that. It just, it just, it doesn't ring, it doesn't ring true. I definitely got to say, I kind of picked up on what Don was saying about him seeming almost affectionate towards Catwoman, and that did disturb me more than anything else to do with the death in the family so far. Yeah. So they're bowling up towards uh, Dark Knight Returns. Alright, so Catwoman number 14, I'm going to give a total of 4 out of 5 batterings. I'm going to give Catwoman number 14 a total of 0 out of 5 batterings. <laughs> okay. I'll give Catwoman number 14 a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. And I'll somewhat cut it in the middle, uh, 3 out of 5. Alright, so that is going to give Catwoman number 14 a total of 3 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next book, Nightwing number 14. How could you keep something like this from me? You weren't exactly honest with me, either. But you told him! He knew! It wasn't my place to tell you. But it was your place to put her in danger! It wasn't like that! I volunteered! You think you did? You don't know him like I do. He manipulates, pulls strings, anything to get what he wants. I thought we had the same goals. Things change. I changed. The game's over, Batman. I quit. Robin, wait. Now we get you 14, written by Tom DeFalco, illustrated by Andres Leonardo. Die for me. With this issue, he opens up with Nightwing fighting the um, street gang, the Tiger Claws. And he's talking to Lucius Fox via ear cam, I guess. Um, or, yeah, he's, yeah he's, calling, he's calling Lucius Fox. Asking him to look up some uh, the gentleman Wesley C. Bicolosi or Bicolosi, and while he's fin- finishing off these guys, the next morning he visits um, Amusement Mile to oversee construction for Haley Circus and talking to uh, Jimmy. I forgot he was a clown or whatever, but uh, you know members Jimmy of the Olsen? circus. Yeah, Jimmy also he's begun working at the Haley Circus now. <laughs> Jimmy, the guy Jimmy from uh, the Voodoo issue. Uh, he's basically overseeing, uh, you know, Haley Circus's future, and despite the crap that's been dealt with, the, the future doesn't look bright because he's invested all this, all every penny he has, towards uh, resuscitating him. Uh, later on that day, as he's changing, he gets a call from Sonia Branch saying that she, uh, apologizing for ditching her dinner, their business dinner the other night, and Grace is like, "Well, she's acting like this is a date. This is awkward," um, and. Lucius gets back to him, explaining that Bicelosi was uh, investigating um, the banking industry for is that the name for the bank. He's a government regulator for the banking industry, and was investigating a London, uh, money laundering scheme, which Sonia was going to testify for. So Dick figures out that 
that must be Shiva's target since she's been in town for a while. And he also wonders whether she has anything to do with the Joker's recent return. Uh, swinging in the middle of the day towards Sonia, he runs into Shiva. And they have they have uh, a bit of conversation as well as a fight where she remembers, hey, you're not Robert anymore, but you're still under the shadow of the bat. And um, Nightwing can, can barely keep up with her because she has a lot of different ways to attack with her... Um, with her ponytail chain ball and her scythe, and she's <laughs> she's basically like Katana or Jade or Melina, all from Mortal Kombat. And uh, at this point, he realizes that her her target is indeed Sonya, and she starts to flick her scythe across the. They're on top. They're fighting on top of a roof, uh, but Nightwing throws off her aim just in time to miss cutting off her head. Sonya ends up going into the bank and continuing doing what she was doing. That inspires Nightwing to actually get a hit off of Shiva. But Shiva beats him up because he's still injured from the last battle. His ribs are still busted. And she knows this as well. So she's like, well, I'm not going to kill you. And as she disappears, laughing while she does it, uh, Nightwing says, wait, can you tell me who hired you? Was it the Joker? Was it the Joker? Uh, We cut to the Iceberg Lounge where, again, again, (laughs) the Penguin shows up uh, to complete my misery. And um, talks to Ogilvy, saying that everything went according to, pl- according to plan. Uh, and then uh, while he says uh, the reason why he tipped off Nightwing to uh, Lady Shiva's exploits was because uh, either Nightwing would have killed him or he would have distracted her. So Ogilvy says, well, how can I ask how you plan to deal with the Joker? And the issue ends at Blackgate where we see Raya come face to face, so to speak, with the Joker. Next, Death of the Family and Nightwing's Nightmare begins. So that was Nightwing number 14, written by Tom DeFalco. Uh, and this is really the first, I suppose it's not really the first, because we saw her in um, Nightwing issue zero. But this is like a real extended appearance of the New 52's Lady Shiva. We don't see her face, for all we know she's disfigured or something. And she, she is... Uh, Notable in that she has she uses a lot of weapons. She's never used weapons before, but her hair is her weapon. Mm-hmm. She has this long brown braid behind her, full of like um, little like bony spikes or boomerangs, and definitely like a little sawed um, axe at the end. And she's notable uh, when her fight against Nightwing by attacking from all different angles, sort of like you know, keeping her the formidable fighter, but in a different sort of way. It's not so much hand-to-hand combat as it is. She's so fast, and so she has so many attacks and weapons that it kind of differentiates her that way. Mm-hmm. So my question to y'all is: How do you take? What's your opinion of this new version of Lady Shiva? How does she rank to? How do, how does she compare towards how, what you knew of Shiva uh, in the in the post-crisis continuity? And uh, are you digging it, or do you have no opinion, or do you not like it? I'll probably go first because I probably have the least to say because. I've only experienced Shiva in Nightfall, which I read recently, and obviously there she's a lot, it's more about her hand-to-hand combat, like you said, less about the weapons, although I thought that her, the way she, her voice was pretty similar, as far as I know, I mean, she seemed very keen about encouraging fighting and learning these talents she didn't seem to um disparage him at all she's you know like if you learn this then you can become an experienced killer and she's still kind of like 
she was in Nightfall saying you know like she, I mean she helped train up Batman again and then was like and then was yeah it was like you know if you keep going with this then you become, can become a real fighter she can kill someone she was kind of encouraging um, Dick to take that path and you know s- saying you can go so much further with this so I thought her voice was similar although like everyone else is surely going to say her hair piece is stupid um I totally agree with Joe that the voice I think was uh, very much on, and I, I have this this comics seminar class that I that I teach, and we discuss you know different storylines. And last week we just did I assigned death in the family, and so of course little Jason Todd runs around and he believed that maybe Shiva was his mother, and I think that that. Shiva is sort of the Shiva that um, we all know and love and we really respect. And just like bare-bones Shiva, because she doesn't need sort of these extra accoutrements. I mean, her power and her deadliness is just in the way that she fights, because she is one of the top fighters in the DCU, like the top five. Uh, So, while the voice is on, I feel like I don't respect the character as much, um, and I didn't really take her as seriously, because I thought to myself, well, in my opinion, I feel like Dick uh, would be down um, if this were the Shiva. I mean, he could somewhat hold his own when he was uh, younger, which I thought was a little unbelievable and then she comments well you've gotten better with age and I just feel like she would have been on top of him the entire time and he would have been down so I don't really like this particular portrayal of Shiva as much. I kind of talked about it last month as far as this Shiva and you know we, we had an interview I don't it was probably like back in July or something like that where basically they were talking about the idea of where they came up with uh, the look for Shiva and it was well, we wanted to do Lady Shiva, but at the same time, one of the editors came up with an idea for a villain that had a ponytail weapon. So they just decided, well, let's just make Lady Shiva have the ponytail weapon. Oh, God. That, I mean, and that's what they said. They legitimately just said that straight out, and I'm just thinking to myself, that's, what we're, that's how we're coming up with decisions nowadays, is we're basically taking two different ideas that have nothing to do with each other and just say, let's just mash them together. Well, I can't wait for some of the more... I can't wait for more interpretations of the classic... And Lady Shiva is not super classic, but of a substantial character within the Batman universe. I can't wait for more substantial characters to be getting a uh, mashup version. But uh, I, I don't know. It's just... I don't like this Lady Shiva. I mm-hmm. just don't understand what the necessity of changing it was. I really just don't get it. Um, other than somebody in editorial was just like, let's just make her new and fresh and give her a ponytail weapon. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, I mean, for me, Lady Shiva, like, Dustin's right, she's not really a classic Batman character. And yet, if you read the comics, like I know everyone here does, Mm-hmm. Um, then she, I mean, in the post-crisis Batman stuff, like you know the '90s and stuff, anytime after post-crisis, she was like a very important, like Tim Drake. She was a very important Batman uh, character. I mean, she wasn't really a Batman character because she existed outside of her own continuity. She appeared in Richard Dragon, I believe. But um, oh, yeah. you know, she helped train Tim Drake. She was decided to be Jason's mother. She helped train Batman after he got his back busted by Bane. Hooray for alliteration! B B B. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> like. Like she, I mean, she's she's important to the Batman family, 
And um, granted, she's not like you know a Batman positive character, but she's a very like you know. One time she might be helping them, or she might be saying, "Hey, Batgirl, in one year we'll kill each other." How is about that? So yeah. I think that like I like I've always liked Shiva because she is like very neutral. She has she's always about her own goals, and I think that like she kind of remained in that. And and uh, I know she was in um, Birds of Prey during the, the Gail Simone's volume. Mm-hmm. Which when when Hunter speed her up, which I hated. <laughs> I, I think Joe and Dustin remember that. And um, I mean, I, I always thought she was really interesting. She was really one of the best uh, DC comics characters because she was a martial artist who was unique. I think here she kind of comes off as some sort of GI Joe villain because she's covered in head to toe and like says, you know, like you know, killing people is the greatest honor of all. I think she kind of loses her nuance and kind of comes off a little bit stock. Um, I'm not, I'm not so much hung up on the weapons. The ponytail thing does feel like a gimmick, though. It feels like they're trying to legitimize her lethality, where Shiva didn't need no weapons, y'all, to yeah. legitimize her legi- lethality. I feel as though, like, it kind of is... I see what they're doing. I don't really hate it. I don't. Um, but I don't think it really works for the character. I mean, it's, it really was... This really is an instance of, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I, I'm not saying you couldn't change... I'm not saying you, you didn't have to give Shiva a costume, but I think the ponytail is like, you know... Then we could literally take out a battle rank and cut her hair, and there goes that weapon. And then I, I, I fear that like Shiba would said would be saying my hair or something like that oh, in this situation. Well, I mean, but but look at it from the perspective of the whole point of Lady Shiva is that she's supposed to be a great martial artist. And don't get me wrong, I think these even in the Zero issue and then these last two issues, I think they did a good job of expressing the fact that she's a great hand to hand. She's great at hand to hand combat. But by giving her that stupid ponytail weapon, <laughs> it makes it less of a purpose to be... What's the point of being a great martial artist if all you're going to do is just swing around your hair with a blade that's attached to it and, and use a freaking... and throw scythes in the, uh, you know, at your targets and stuff like that? What is the point of that? Yeah, I mean... That's just basically, that's just basically dumbing down the fact that she is... She has always been this great martial artist. Yeah, like, like, okay. I mean, <laughs> if any of you scrubs out there have not read Nightfall, like, she has an. I know she has an interaction with the Nightwing, which their quote unquote fight lasts all of one panel, where she just locks up his arm and like basically takes him out that way. And that's like she has. She's like in this, this like kind of skin tight ninja outfit with no weapons whatsoever. Here it's like you know Nightwing can hold his own with his uh, fireworks and screamer sticks, which I don't really like either. But um, it feels as though. It feels very, very flash and no substance to me. And this is this is this is not sort of like you know me saying they they they've utterly gutted the character, but it feels like it's a change not for the better. Just simple as that, as that you know. They're trying to make her stay a, a, a lethal martial artist, but it's like you know what it is. It's like giving a superhero like a bunch of guns on their costume and have them running around saying like you know they're still cool, but they have all this. It's like that where it's like visually, it's you can kind of like see what they're going for, but it's not. It's not as cool, essentially. Um, and there's there's a crack where Nightwing says, "Well, according to my calculations, we're the same age." And I just like, I was like, I put my finger in my mouth at that time. Um, but that's really all I have to say about this issue. I thought that uh, I think the t- continuing the continual uh, continuous shipping of uh, Sonya and Dick remains forced. Um, I'm not. It's not like I don't have any. I don't, I don't have anything against the character, but like. There's always this narration, like, you know, like, maybe there's more towards our relationship than meets the eye. It's like, shut up, Dick. <laughs> you, just, you, just, you just have a coincidence in your families. It's not that big of a deal. But I thought that this issue was pretty decent. So um, those are my thoughts. 
Alright, so Nightwing number 14, I'm going to give a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. 3.5 out of 5 batterings for me. For whatever reason, I enjoyed this. I will give it 4 out of 5 batterings. 3 out of 5 batterings for me. Alright, so that is going to give Nightwing number 14 a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our last book, Batman Incorporated number 5. Who's that? Dork. You look like a duck. I had Alfred read your books. He told me they suck. Okay. Batman Incorporated, number five. Writer Grant Morrison, artist Chris Burnham, colorist Nathan Fairbairn, and letterer Dave Sharp. Tying back to the previous issue, Batman tells Damien that he must go back to his mother because if he becomes Batman, everything falls apart. We are then thrust back into the hellish, or I guess thrust forward as it were, into the hellish future first scene in Batman 666. There we see Batman with a little baby being swarmed by people a la Walking Dead, all infected by some sort of Joker strain. He calls the Robat, shoots several of the people, and goes out the window of Wayne Tower while holding onto the Robat and the baby. On the other side of the city, Commissioner Babs Gordon looks on the burning city within a fortified Arkham Asylum, waiting for Batman. The Robot, Robat, doesn't make it all the way, and Batman is forced to leap across a destroyed bridge, hello, no man's land, towards a fire truck within an extended ladder. With zombified, jokerified people right on his heels, he leaps and makes it to the ladder with Babe in arms. Inside Arkham, a chain smoking Babs tells Damien that the baby tested a natural immunity to the Joker strain, so maybe there is a future after all. Nevertheless, it is only a matter of time before the president pulls the plug on Gotham. Damien, a.k.a. Batman, explains that he promised he would protect Gotham down to the last stone, down to his last breath. <gasps> he continues his monologue as a herd of Joker-fied people rush the walls of Arkham and are sniped from above. The president, surrounded by his advisors, still has not heard from Batman or the commish, and is told he must make a decision. Back at Arkham, Batman, followed by his trusty cat, Alfred, heads to Jack and Ape's cell and wants to know what he found out about the baby's blood sample. Jack and Ape's teases Batman by saying this is the end as foretold in Revelations. He is a monster in a world made for monsters and will survive, and as Babylon, Babylon falls, Batman comes begging to him, begging help from his enemies. Batman presses the issue and demands to know if an antidote can be made. Jack and Apes explain the devil is preparing his arena for the final battle. Gotham is hell's capital on Earth, and there's a reason the child has no symptoms, because it is, bum bum bum, a carrier, and Batman brought it among them. Batman races away, tells them to seal the infirmary, and warn Gordon, as we see a single panel in the past, with Batman dead and Damien as Robin crying out. Damien sees into the past and hears that it was his fault opening the door to the devil. Outside Arkham, it is hell. Inside the infirmary, it is death. With dead Joker-fied, do <laughs> with dead Joker-fied doctors and Babs with a creepy smile and holding the now dead baby, explaining that Joker got what he wanted in the end. She tells him not to let her out, but he tries to help her, and she shoots him from her chair in a panel invoking that of killing 
joke! <laughs> <laughs> At the White House, the president makes a decision to nuke Gotham, and his advisor, a.k.a. the devil, tells him he did the right thing. At Arkham, Babs rolls out, yes, rolls out, opens the doors, and uh, roll out, boom, boom, roll out, da, 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 opens the doors, and tells the Joker by people to come inside and destroy it. As chaos comes inside, Batman lets the chaos out by releasing the inmates, and they fight the Joker-fied people as Gotham is lit up by the nuke. Flashback. To Batman explain to Damien that he doesn't know how it happens, but it happens. He had a dream of a future Batman who sold his soul to the devil and destroyed Gotham. Talia is the one who manip manipulates Damien into the Batman, but Batman at least prevented one of them from being killed that night. Damien pleads that no one knows the future and to let him stay with him. <sighs> Knight speaks to Batman over the comlink and explains they found Target One, a homeless shelter on Crime Alley, and in fact a site for Leviathan under their noses. Batman demands to know how they got the location, but it's too late when Obama is discovered behind a tapestry and it goes off. Next up, people, Garland of Skull. Well done. <laughs> That was, that was well a really done. long... I apologize for it being so long, but there a lot happens. Okay. Woo! In my opinion, I just want to start off, but in my opinion, this was the best book, I think, from this batch. I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, how well... This is my first thing. How well does it work to have Bruce's dream of the future be the explanation of Batman 666 that we saw several years ago, 2007, I believe, and why he wants Damien to go back to his mother? I think it works well because, uh, mm, I don't know why, I just think it works well, <laughs> to be honest. Um, because this is such like a, like a really nightmarish what-if story. Mm -hmm. And I remember like Batman 666, that, that kind of read as though it were the future to happen. That felt like a very likely, like very, like that's just going to happen in the future, which I didn't really have a problem with, but like it was sort of precipitated upon the idea that Batman, both, both Bruce and Dick at the time, because Dick was Batman, both of them were going to die. And that Damien was like, you know, going to take up the mantle as sort of guilt. So it's like it had a bad ending kind of future thing. Um, so there was always that little niggle. But besides that, I think that uh, it worked out fine as a future. But this one is like, you know, this is an apocalyptic future. Everything, everything is a bad. Every page is a bad ending. Once Batman meets with, uh, you know, Doctor Doctor Gorilla. <laughs> I know it's not his yeah. name, but uh, yeah. uh, I, I thought it worked really well. I thought. As a you know, again, we have more references to the devil, which uh, is a constant theme in Morris's run, which really works well, I think, because it's, it always keeps me guessing. I never know what's serious and what's I never know what what's real, and what's not. And um, as a final attack from both Taya and the Joker, I think it just it was just brilliant. So like, for and and because Batman went back in time randomly during the whole uh, Return of Bruce Wayne miniseries, I think it works fine that he had a wacky dream because. He has, you know, there's been stranger things happen to him, so... I, there's there's little... I, I don't think there's a single thing wrong with this issue. I thought this was... was great. I, as far as the, the... the dreams part of it, I think ultimately, I think... Batman just looks at it from the perspective... He's, he's got to look at the whole picture, and, and ultimately, Batman is probably dead on when he says... This is all Talia's plan from the very beginning, is by having Damien reunite with... Bruce and have him eventually become Robin and the idea would be that he eventually takes over the, the mantle of the bat it makes complete sense I mean what else would Talia want to do other than just to fulfill her her goal 
and why wouldn't she use her son to to do this it, it just it makes perfect sense the thing that I thought was kind of interesting though is the fact that Damien doesn't see it the same way and I just I as far as what we've seen Damien not just in in uh, in Batman Incorporated but just in some of the other books too Damien is a very smart person mm-hmm. he should be able to see the possibility of this being true too I mean like he he ultimately knows that it, he should know that it's a possibility that his mother planned this from the very beginning and it would be the most perfect way to do what she wants to do which is basically eliminate Gotham so I mean, in my mind, I just have to wonder, like, why doesn't Damien just... He, why doesn't he, you know, at, at least... It, not necessarily admit that that uh, it would happen, but at least see it, as a, see it as a possibility. Well, in fairness, I think that, like, even though uh, Damien was a victim of Talia's machinations where she took over his body and have him beat on Dick with a bat or something, rather cartoonishly, I think that Damien's really reticent to think of his mom as that evil as she is despite the fact that I think in uh, it was in uh, Batman Inc. volume 2 number 2 where Talia was like this crazy woman <laughs> running around like 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 you know she even has her father under her under her thumb saying you know I run these streets now and basically saying like, you know, I'm going to raise Kane on Batman because he got my son killed which I think she knows is, a, is not true but like I think Morrison's really shown the best in Talia and how messed up she is. And Damien, being who he is and how young he is, does not, doesn't really want to see that, which is why Batman can second-guess Talia's motives better than he can. So I think it makes a lot of sense that like he can't particularly see this just, become, just from his perspective. I mean, I think Dick could. I think Bruce can. Tim probably could. But Damien, I don't think, judging from who he is, would be able to figure this out. Yeah, I also don't think he wants to because you know how much he enjoys working with Bruce. As, I mean, especially recently, and how disappointed he is when he's told that that can no longer happen. So I think it's it's partly denial that leads to that. Um, as for the the dream being, you know, it's, it's like a framing device for this issue, basically. But I mean. I thought it was a phenomenal issue. I mean, it's nice that it, it's like a what-if, which means that you're completely free to do anything you like, which is always fun, yet it's still in a continuity because, you know, it's like this is a definite possible future. It's similar to, I feel like, the Night of Vengeance storyline where it's it's kind of out of continuity, but it's something that still happened because, you know, it was like an alternate reality so it still has like a weight to it and it's and because you know the characters and you care for them you all the way through you're wondering what's going to happen next and because it's a what if anything could happen so it's a really exciting story uh my second one what do you think of the zombified jokerified gotham and uh, you know what? What do you think of it in general? What do you think caused it, perhaps? And do you think this will be explained by the end of the book? And I mean, by the end of uh, Batman Inc. I'm not so sure it'll be explicitly said. I think it was implied in throughout the issue that Joker is no longer Joker's dead, and when he went, he went out of a bang, and that he kind of caused this apocalyptic strain of. Joker Venom. Yeah, and I think 
I mean, like like you said, it's not it's not directly stated what the case is, but ultimately, I don't think that the I don't think Joker has been around and he just miraculously just died. I think this is probably a strain that slowly built up after he died, because I doubt that Joker was still operating on a full time basis and making all these people zombies, Joker zombies or whatever, right before. Um, or the entire time while Damien... I mean, think about how old Joker is. He's not that old. He's not that much older slash younger than, than Bruce Wayne. So if Bruce Wayne's out of the picture, unless, of course, Bruce Wayne died, even so, Damien has to be at least another 15, 20 years older than he was now. So, I mean, I doubt that the Joker... And, and that's that's that that's a... That's like a... That's on the low end of years because we we would have to think that if Batman's no longer in the picture, unless he was killed... I think it was definitely implied that he was killed because of that flashback we have where we see Damien kneeling over him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've that before, too. But even so, I doubt that... I, even so, I doubt that, that Damien would pick up the mantle of Batman if he's in that picture, if he's, you know, 12 years old. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> And my final one is uh, the characterization of Babs. Uh, what do you think of this? And I know that you sort of already got a glimpse of it in Batman 666. Uh, but here you sort of get the back and forth between uh, Damien and Babs. And you can see that, you know, she doesn't like him 100% and kind of has those, uh, the back the back and forth. I already said that. But the back and forth, you know, like, um, well, you've had you've tried to kill me a couple times well you you know I may have to find I, I don't remember what the exact thing was but but it was a great uh, just conversation between the two of them and then of course she was the one, like she was fighting all the all the time when she was actually infected you know don't let me get out and then of course in the end you see her chair and and her green sweater and her glasses are up so we don't really know what happens um, and then the panel, you know, that panel that always pops up. I thought that that was interesting that he sort of brought that back, but it was sort of turned on its head. So what do you think about Babs as Commissioner Gordon in this particular issue? I've always kind of thought that uh, even after the New 52, Morrison's been writing Batman Inc. with the uh, express uh, direction that nothing's really changed. Because, I mean, we saw her again, like you mentioned, we saw her again in 666. And because she's in a wheelchair, I mean, obviously you could say Barbara could always be shot again. <laughs> but, like, I mean, this is, I mean, to, to me, this is Oracle. I mean, this is, like, this is Barbara Gordon before she was pathetically regressed to Batgirl being, again. So, like, this is sort of like the same character that we were used to uh, reading about. So, at least in terms of the, her harshness towards Damien, it doesn't really, I mean, it feels familiar to me in a good way. Um,. I think her being the like the, like the twist back because she's really the only other character that we see besides Damien that we were familiar with. We don't know where uh, uh, Tim is or Jason. Dick and Batman are dead, so and Alvar's probably dead by this point. So like it's interesting. I like the idea that like we see um, very little, but more than one character from the original days. And the call the the her being a commissioner. I'm not so sure that it's, it's so much a callback, but like it just reminds me of a uh, Batman Beyond mm-hmm. where she was. And she was typically a real hard ass in, as a as a commissioner, um, but I really love. And again, it's Chris Burnham's art. 
man. It's like I I don't know what it is, but like he draws evil women so well. Like the panel where she's like uh, lighting the cigarette, and for some reason she's smiling. Like it, it's just really like a, it's a mix. It's like almost a perverse attraction because it's like you know, they just look in their eyes like they're gonna do something, and um, it's almost it's also really scary when she does uh, shoot um, Damien, <laughs> partly because Damien's face looks like he really does not like being shot, but uh, she looks like the Joker in that panel. And it's also because of the coloring, but I thought that she was. Uh, I thought that she was great in here, and it's also because of the plot. The plot puts her in a really interesting position, but um, I thought she was another aspect of this book, which really made it fun to read. I thought that, like Don said, it reminded me a lot of Batman Beyond, where she w- she's the commissioner in Batman Beyond. But I think, I think it it also deals with the fact that maybe Morrison is like Don said, is is really just writing the story based off of what his original intent was and not whatever, all this stuff that has happened within the New 52, because you know, we've seen we we, we see Batman in his, his Batman Incorporated costume which he had before the New 52 started. Since the New 52, the only book that he's worn it in, or it has appeared in, is Batman Incorporated. Now we see Barbara in a wheelchair which we've seen, we saw before in the past, uh, before the New 52, uh, and then obviously with Batman 666, but the, the the thing is, like, I think it's just, this is Morrison, obviously we already know this is Morrison's swan song for Batman, because this is the last thing he's going to do with Batman, and he's doing it the way he wants to, so if he's going to have this throwback issue where he, you know, goes back to the to the Batman that we saw in Batman 666 with Damien being Batman, he's going to do it his way regardless of all this stuff that's happening corporate-wise with DC and then deciding to do the New 52 and reboot everything and all of that. He's just doing what he wants to do. And because it is a potential future, DC you know, isn't, isn't going to do say anything, although I doubt DC would be say, telling Grant Morrison what he can and can't do anyway. Um... But I, I think, ultimately, I think it's cool. I, I, I think it's enjoyable. Another thing that I thought was really cool was the fact that um, Damien had uh, named the cat Alfred. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of cool, especially since it, the cat looked like it was... The, 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 the fur on the cat was colored the same way, uh, you know, the tuxedo or... I get, not tuxedo, but the outfit that Alfred would always wear. So it, uh, that was kind of interesting. I mean... I like the throwbacks. I really do like the throwbacks to stuff that has that's happened in the past, but also stuff that could potentially happen in the future. I think it's kind of cool that you know Damien has, and it's completely believable that Damien has absolutely no problem showing people who he mm-hmm. is because that's who he is as a person. He's he's not going to hide behind the cowl if he if he if he doesn't have to. So the fact is that, you know, he takes off the, the cowl and he's in front of the doctor getting patched up and Barbara's there. It it says something. And honestly, it, it, again, that just screamed Batman Beyond for me. And I don't know how much of Batman Beyond Grant Morrison has watched. But I, I that just, it, like... The baby's still with like Jerry McGinnis, isn't he? From 666? Is it the same baby? Yeah, because I remember in the six six six, he saves a baby, which was given Joker Venom, and that baby was Terry McGinnis. So, and I I forgot whether that was before or after Batman Beyond got his own comic book, but uh, there's, there's... It, was at, it was way before. Yeah, okay, so that, so it's possible that he's, he liked the show. 
But nonetheless, and we also had that throwback with Batman 700 where he shows the potential future and he shows the multiple Batman, including Batman Beyond and that as well. So, I mean, like, he might have seen it. It's just that that entire sequence where they're basically that entire exchange between Barbara and Damien going back and forth and throwing their throwing their spars at each other as far as, like, Barbara saying, oh, I, you know, we've tried to kill each other in the past and or I've tried to kill you in the past and it just seems like you don't die... That entire thing screamed like a conversation between Terry McGinnis and Barbara Gordon in Batman Beyond where she would basically say, so you're working for the old guy, well, you know, blah, 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 and she basically like set him on a, set him on, you know, basically like put him on the track that he needs to be on, but it's not the track that he's going to go on. And that's what I, when I read this, I, that's exactly what I felt. I think I, I definitely got, um, themes of Batman Beyond just, you know, because he's in a wheelchair. But um, I think that the scenes of Barbara, particularly the one after Jack and Ape says that the baby's carrier, is probably the most powerful. I mean, it's really tense when he's running through Arkham Asylum trying to get to her. And then when you see her, I mean, there's all this blood beforehand, but then you see her and she snapped this little girl's neck. Yeah. And then you just see this kind of twisted smile where, like, it's only half a smile where you can see she's trying to fight the venom and trying to control it, particularly the bottom of that page where she's just saying smile. And there's a real twisted grin on her face where she almost looks like she's crying and she's got the grin on her face before she shoots him. I thought that was really well done, particularly by Burnham there. I also just want to... Oh. No, you can. Sorry. No, if you still had a thought. Mine was just going back to something Dustin said. Go ahead. Okay. Um, No, just Dustin said about, you know, removing his mask and that just being, uh, you know, the way Damien is. And I also saw that, um, I saw less as his character and more as the fact that, I mean, he could potentially be all by himself. And really, the mask was always there uh, to protect the people that he cared about. And that's always been said by any hero, basically. And so I think that just him being uh, so open shows that there's probably no one left for him. I mean, besides Alfred. You know, if Bruce is dead and Alfred the human is gone and and Dick (laughs) and everything, then I think there's nothing for him to, to worry about. I think there's something also interesting in that he's the protector of all of these non-infected people in Arkham Asylum and that, you know, he's a protector and then to have him walk around without his cowl on partly, I guess, shows that he's comfortable and, you know, everyone knows who he is. But at the same time, I mean, I'm not sure if it would be more impressive if he was just constantly walking around as Batman. But I think that kind of goes back to his character and then, I guess, partly to do with what Stella was saying and is it, I think it's interesting to think about that. I mean, I guess you don't see the only person we see him without his cowl on is with Barbara and the the doctor. But I think it's implied that he doesn't wear it all the time. It's pretty ironic too, um, the fact that Babs was infected uh, in the end and and was basically this agent of Joker. Uh, th- you know, the one person that she hates. Uh, so much, but uh, I just thought that this was a, a great story, and I'm touch and go on Morrison things, you know, if I understand it, then normally <laughs> I give it a higher grade, um, 
But Batman Inc. has been enjoyable all around, and I, I thought that this was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I would love to see, like, just a series, even though it would be so dark. It would be so dark and depressing, you'd probably have to put it down um, for a time. But I think it would be awesome to have a series that's this sort of timeline, like maybe an Elseworlds kind of thing where we've got Damien in this, like, hellish future. I think that would be an awesome an awesome book. Alright, so Batman Incorporated number five, I'm going to give four and a half out of five batterings. I'm agree. As much as I was gushing about it, there were some things that did confuse me, but it was still so much fun to read. And the ending was great. Four and a half out of five batterings. I'm definitely giving this a five, and I wish I could break the scale and give it at least six, but <laughs> they won't let me. Uh, and I'll agree and say 4.5 out of five batterings. Alright, so Batman Incorporated number 5 gets a total of 4.5 out of 5 batterings. That is all of our books. Let's throw over to John with Bat Books for Beginners. Dun, 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 dun. Hello and welcome to another episode of Bat Books for Beginners. I'm your host John and this week we will be reviewing Nightwing Rough Justice. This collects Nightwing issues number 9 through to 18 and is written by Chuck Dixon and features art by Scott McDaniel, both of whom need no introduction. It ran from June 19. 97 through to March 1998. It can be bought new in the UK for £108 and new in America for $130. So it's a little bit expensive. But is it any good? That's the main question. And we're about to find out as we delve into Nightwing Rough Justice. We open with Nightwing's rope snapping and him falling. He manages to break his fall and lands in a shopping centre. However, Dick's bad luck continues as he interrupts an armed gang during a kidnapping. It transpires the gang is run by Two-Face, who is standing on a large statue with a child whom he is kidnapping. Two-Face offers Nightwing a choice to catch him or the child. Dick naturally chooses the child and dies after him, but he's too late and the child dies. We are then treated to a series of disapproving words and looks from Nightwing's friends, including Batman and Batgirl. Whilst this happens, there is a voiceover talking about fear and what Nightwing fears, and the final panel reveals Scarecrow standing over Nightwing. The next issue is a Scarecrow Nightmare, where Dick is struggling in life, Bruce has everything, and Tim Drake and Jean-Paul Valley constantly bully him at work. His wife cheats on him with Roy Harper, so to find out why he is having no luck and is, in his own words, such a loser, he goes to Bruce, 
who throws his oldest son out of the window, telling him that he has to save him just to make sure that he wants it enough. Nightwing once again fails to save his child. However, it snaps him out of the fear nightmare and he takes out Scarecrow, saying, Bloodhaven, the gloves are off. Nightwing then drops Scarecrow off at Soames' house, who hired Scarecrow to remove Nightwing. However, Crane saves his own life by telling Soames that Nightwing will experience flashbacks because of the drugs. For example, when talking to Clancy, his landlady, he sees her as Two-Face. So Nightwing returns to Crane hoping for an antidote. However, he is interrupted by a SWAT team who arrive looking for Soames. It appears that Desmond, better known as Blockbuster, is fed up with Soames' failure to remove Nightwing and tries to kill him. So Soames arrives at St Anthony's where Desmond is visiting his mother and tries to kill him. However, Nightwing arrives to try and get Des arrested. However, Desmond has no plans to be captured and his goons take some of the other residents hostage, forcing Nightwing to choose between catching Desmond and saving the hostages. Nightwing quickly takes out the goons, but Soames is apparently killed by Desmond. However, as he is taken to hospital, a medic dealing with Soames discovers that he is in fact still alive. Soames is taken to hospital and operated on to try and save him. Meanwhile, Clancy meets a man called Tad, who is making some kids clean up some graffiti. Nightwing, meanwhile, catches a kid called Mutt breaking in and befriends him, even saving his life from a gang. He gets him, Mutt, to be adopted by Hogan, the owner of the bar where Dick works. We then move to Nightwing and Batman breaking up some gangsters meeting. They take the head gangster Frankie and a man who turned up halfway through the gang bust to try and kill him to get information and it turns out the contract was set up by Frankie's father-in-law called Tony Royce. Batman and Nightwing then travel to a chemical factory owned by Royce hoping to get more evidence. However, they are both knocked out by a mysterious person in a mask. When they come to, they are tied up and surrounded by pigs, and Tony Voice is gloating. Nightwing buys Batman some time to escape. However, after they escape, Dick snaps and tells Bruce that he doesn't need him looking over his shoulder. However, after an apologetic call to Alfred, Bruce decides to return in the guise of Matches Malone. Dick has bugged Diva, the man who tried to kill Frankie the gangster, and he and Batman get details of Diva's and Royce's crimes. They break into Royce's house and play him the tape, threatening to tell Blockbuster who Royce is working for. So Royce tells them everything. They then travel to Desmond's house to try and catch him. However, Desmond is expecting them and has Lady Vic and Stallion waiting for them. Whilst Batman takes on Lady Vic and Stallion, Nightwing takes on Blockbuster. Batman, of course, makes short work of Lady Vic and Stallion, and whilst Dick makes Desmond 
take out the surrounding support structure so that the building falls on him. However, despite the belief that he's dead, as Batman and Nightwing leave, Blockbuster emerges bloodied from the rubble. We then cut to Soames, who is making a recovery from Blockbuster's attack, but becomes distressed when he hears Desmond's name. Meanwhile, Dick buys an abandoned factory for Ella and builds a car. He takes it out for a spin by taking down a group of illegal street sellers, and as Dick drives away, Manbat arrives in Bloodhaven. Dick takes down two people he thinks are trying to shoot Batman. However, it turns out to be Manbat, and Kirk escapes whilst Dick tries to hunt him down. Dick catches him eating some insects by some lights. They fight when, all of a sudden, Manbat is tranquilized by a mysterious man, who also shoots Nightwing, and it transpires that that man is Deathstroke. Deathstroke takes Manbat to a warehouse for a Mr. Malden, who will make Kirk a star in his new video about a human vampire. Dick sees Maldoon promoting the video of the human vampire film and he puts two and two together and so heads to Maldoon's boat to stop them. He fights Deathstroke and manages to free Man Bat and the issue ends with Dick escaping from the boat. So that's Nightwing Rough Justice. Overall I thought this was very very good. It's not one single overarching storyline. As you could probably tell, it's a lot of individual storylines. But I thought most of those storylines were actually really, really good and really, really interesting. The only one that I had a real problem was was the final story, which was the Man Bat. I thought that seemed a bit contrived and a little bit unnecessary. I didn't really care that some film artist bloke wanted to create a story with using man bat it actually seemed really really stupid and i didn't feel that we had long enough to establish what a jerk this character was it really only seemed to serve the purpose of introducing deathstroke who in my opinion could have been introduced in a million other different ways and ways that would have been much more interesting frankly he's a supervillain. does he really need an excuse to march into town to cause trouble no he's got a long history with the teen titans and for him to turn up and irritate Nightwing would be much, much more sensible, interesting, and plausible in the long term. However, aside from those, these storylines were genuinely very, very good. I enjoyed these storylines with Batman, especially because it furthered Dick's character, and also feathered Batman's as well. We saw Batman grow to accept Dick as his own man and doing his own thing. He offered advice, but it wasn't patronising or annoying. It was actually one of genuine concern, and you really felt that these two characters were bonding, which was very, very nice. And it seems to be much more of a relationship where... It's an adult son and a father, rather than some of the other relationships that he's had before, where it seems very much father and son, but to a young son, someone who's learning like Tim. 
overall I thought Dick's character does progress very very well through the entire thing. We see a furthering of his relationship with Clancy, his landlady, but also developing more and more things. He gets his own lair for example and he develops his own Batmobile. Which of course would be, I guess, a Nightwing would be, I don't know. I really, really enjoyed the artwork in this. Scott McDaniel is, as per usual, on great form, and the characters looked really, really interesting. I particularly did like his Deathstroke. I thought he looked dangerous, he looked mean, and he looked scary, as did Man Bat. The only problem I really had with both the art and the storyline was when it came to Soames. I don't really understand why Soames needs to be turned 180 degrees, why he just can't die, or better yet, have still been alive as a normal person and just been a continuous thorn in Dick's side. It's made quite clear throughout the comic that Dick is not dealing with somewhere like Gotham where the corruption is coming from the ground up. It's working its way from the top downwards. And that makes him difficult to remove. So it would have been much more interesting seeing Dick try to reconcile the two things. By dealing with the street crime, but also having to deal with the higher up corruption. However, those are, in my honest opinion, probably only really nitpicky things. Other than that, I thought the series was fantastic. It's probably not worth picking up for £108 or $120.00. It's a little bit expensive, it's much cheaper to find the individual issues, but I would highly recommend that you do so. So I'm going to give this 4 out of 5 Batarangs. So that's everything for this week. Next time we'll be reviewing Gordon of Gotham, which is a 4 part miniseries. So if you want to go and find that issue, you can do. If you want to leave any comments, any requests, any opinions, please do feel free to leave anything in the comments section, either underneath the Bad Books for Beginners podcast as an individual, or even leave them in the comic podcast comment section. I do try and read them, and it would be nice to have some opinion, feedback, and references. So now I'm going to hand you back over to Dustin and the guys. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you again next time. Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. As far as what we'll be covering next time on the podcast, we will be covering a number of uh, books that are going to be dealing with Death of the Family. So as far as what we'll be covering next time on the podcast, we'll be covering Batman number 15, Detective Comics number 15, Batgirl number 15, Batman Robin number 15, and we'll also be covering Suicide Squad number 15 as well, as that also deals with Death of the Family. So five books for next episode, as well as Bat Books for Beginners. And uh, as far as some other things to check out um, that are dealing with Batman, they in the next two weeks we do have... Um, a couple of different books that have Batman popping up. Obviously, as we have stopped covering, but is still Batman-oriented, is uh, Batwing number 15. We also have um, we have Legends of the Dark Knight number 3, the third issue of the uh, collection of the, the digital series. 
that is released as well. World's Finest number seven has Damien guest starring in that. Swamp Thing number seven or seven. Swamp Thing number fifteen has Swamp Thing in Gotham City, um, dealing with Batman. Obviously, not directly. Um, we also have Batman Arkham Unhinged number nine, which is another of the uh, Batman Arkham City digital series collected. So there's a number of other books you can check out as well. Um, related to the Batman universe indirectly, so you can check those out as well. So that's everything for this episode. I want to remind everyone to head over to the website for all the latest news related to movies, merchandise, TV, video games, and general news as well as the comics. You can head over to the website also to check out all of the other podcasts, including the normal cast, the commentaries, which has been updated, and in fact, if you check out the Batman universe specials, uh, the first OGN special has posted, and the second one will be posting this month as well. So you can check those out. Um, you can also check out the Bat Fans podcast, as well as if you go over to Backhold Oracle, you can check out the Backhold Oracle podcast. I wouldn't recommend that one. How dare you! <laughs> It's a bastard among men. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos from the Batman Universe. And of course, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net with any questions, comments, or concerns. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Commander Donovan. This is Joe. And this is Lisa Hayes. I mean Stella. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care of all your little monsters out there. Lady Gaga fans? Or just... <laughs> Not really. I, just, I saw her the episode where she was on The Simpsons and she always said that. I'm going to say goodbye to everyone. <laughs> well... sort of looking up to this relatively new hero who's not even got superpowers. Yes, she does. Batwoman? Woman? Oh, okay. No, no, Batwoman. Yeah. Well, um, she's powered to have bleached skin. So, my question to the listeners and to you guys, how do you see this partnership going down after this issue? Since they're uh, particularly shown to be very disagreeable, do you see that they're going to stick together and work things out? Do you see that they're going to go up against each other? Is Sebastian Clark going to pose a threat towards Talon? What are your thoughts after seeing the two work together here? Nobody. Question two. Um, <laughs> Could you repeat that question, please? In the, in the post-crisis continuity, and uh, are you digging it, or do you have no opinion, or do you not like it? B. Huh? What? What? Huh? What? <laughs> oh, B. I thought you said me. I, uh, uh, was that... To- oh, I have some weird... What is going on? What do I... Oh, my thing was semi-muted. What happened? Uh, I coughed while you were talking, and I said sorry. Okay. British, I tell you what. <laughs> uh, you want me to repeat the question?
Nah, I got it. I'm gonna pass for now. I want to hear Stella's thoughts. Oh, okay. Stella. Um. <coughs> C. C. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we can go around. I think uh, whoever's editing this for this sound clip should just bring some Willow Smith. I want my hair back in. I want my hair. Ha 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 ha. All right. So Nightwing number fourteen. I'm gonna give a total of three and a half out of five bad rings. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I, it still felt like a fairly solid Nightwing issue. I will give it 3.5 out of 5 batterings. What? <laughs> B, B, 3 out of half. Uh, the first OGN special has posted, and the second one will be posting this month as well. So you can check that out. Just in time for Christmas. Yes, exactly. I planned that. I swear to God, I really did. <laughs> have a nice day.